In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1696 to 1709. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1696. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, Outer Space. Space. I hope you enjoy. Aldens, written by Arclight Magus. In a broad universe and at the edges of what is known, there are many peoples, many places, and many tales. This is but one of them from the whole of what has been, is, and will be. It is not the height of galactic civilization, nor was it the beginning or the end, merely somewhere in between. Species warred, misunderstandings were had, breakthroughs accomplished, heroism marked and forgotten. But perhaps if there was a semi-constant amidst all of this, what was a near-constant, you might ask? Olden's Bar on Galactic Station 3. How could this place have been a near-constant if what was upon the Galactic Station 3, particularly given how many times it changed hands over the decades and even the centuries? Well, that's the trick. In the now, it's Galactic Station 3. Once upon a time, it was Terran Star Station Chameleon. Before that, it was Mars Tether Station 1. And what does all of this have to do with Alden's? Alden's was the first shop to ever open its doors aboard the station. Even in the now, where it is owned by a great descendant of the original Alden, Alden is one of the few places in galactic society that is considered one of the only true neutral grounds. The very powerful, the preeminently corrupt, the poorest, most honest of souls, and every being in between who knows and respects Alden's. It's said that criminals and the law can dine in peace together at Alden's. This isn't to say that there isn't a law at Alden's, but rather there are Alden's two laws, and Alden's laws are enforced by all. But all of this is a mere decoration to the now. Why? Because in the now, someone, is about to break Alden's law and discover what it means to be on the wrong side of it. Another round, Alden! called out the Zert, called Blem. They were a compatriots had been steadily drinking and eating at Alden's for the past several cycles. They'd successfully robbed several vessels and various species and decided to stop in the Galactic Station 3 to try and pour on some of their ill-gotten gains. They'd been reasonably successful. Galactic policing and anti-piracy measures being poor even at the best of times. Alden merely nodded and began pouring the group another round. His dark skin unusual for this part of the galactic hub. But no being ever really remarked upon it. After all, what was the skin of a Terran compared to the glittering scales of the Justic or the finely coiffed fur of the Terranean? No, Alden was only remarkable because he was Alden. At least, as far as these customers knew. Alden smoothly delivered the round to the table with a smooth elegance that stood him well. The Zert, opposed Blum, moved to slap. Alden on the back, but seemed to miss without apparent reason why. Will that be all? Alden asked, the consummate professional. Blum nodded, a replication of Alden's movements that they had picked up after several visits to this place. Alden quickly withdrew and began attending to other patrons at the bar. Blum looked around at the bar and contemplated the other patrons. A few Terrans 
probably Astra miners, if they were any judge, stopped in for a quick round before they set back out into one of the nearby belts. Irugap, on some kind of social gathering with a Winean, a Pelic, and a Max. A few of the local constabulary, who appeared to be steadily ignoring the room while drinking heavily with the cheapest beverages that Alden stocked. And a Zert that Blum both recognized and didn't, or rather thought they recognized, but couldn't be sure. The fringe was right, but the eyes seemed wrong. Those eyes seemed much kinder than the ones Blum remembered being on the other side of the weaponry of their last encounter. Unfortunately, one of the Zert that Blum was with also recognized the familiar Zert and yelled out, Ollie! Mertham! The Zert barked out, halfway spilling their drink. The familiar Zert looked over and Blum could see a moment of hatred spring to life in those eyes. And yet, just as quickly, the moment was gone and the eyes softened. Such a reaction was practically unlike any Zert in the whole of history. This, in fact, one of the only instances of a Zert putting aside the past grudge, and so it wholly was remarkable in that regard. Sadly, this fact was about to be lost in the mix of what would follow. The Zert named Mutham collected a drink from Alban and walked over to Blum's seating and table. What a surprise to see you here, Matham said amendably. We were just passing through, couldn't resist stopping by this old place, Blum grinned, a jagged toothed grin, slapping the table heavily, making even the heavy table and the genuine Terran wood boards beneath it bounce slightly. Your ship has seen better days, Blum. Did you ever get around to fixing that chair and slip bypass like I told you? Mutham gestured out the windows of the bar at the station, slowly rotating in the general direction of the docking ports. Nah, upgraded we did. Got a new ship and all, bellowed one of the Zerts, who was seated near the Blum. Blum reached across the table and was about to hit the Zert before slowly leaning back and lowering the appendage. Blum, have you truly fallen this far again? Mutham seemed to be disappointed and yet condescending. Blum could feel their fringe flare involuntarily at that. I've, uh, I just had a few setbacks. At least this way I'm not stuck behind a desk, or worse, back in Zertia, they said curtly. Given that this was an age-lacking universal translation, practically live, at least for the most common folk, the rest of the bar could seem to sense the tension, and so was watching as something happening, if only for a moment. But for those who didn't speak Zerth, they might have simply been having polite conversation for them. You're a thief and a coward, like I told you the last time I saw you, Mutham said in the galactic common and very loudly. This got the attention of the whole bar, and perhaps more importantly, it got Alden's attention. Blum considered a moment, considering where they were, considered their history with Mutham, considered the several days worth of drinks and food weighing down their tail. No, thought Blum. Not worth it. Anywhere else, maybe, but not here. Unfortunately, Blum's companions were not considerate of just where they were given the same quantity of drink and food. The first opposite Blum stood in a hurry and moved to circle around Mutham. Mutham, for their part, looked shocked. The second stood, knocking over the heavy table with ease and spilling the accumulated empty food and drink containers to the floor. By this point, all two seconds of it, the rest of the bar had gone silent. 
We should take your fringe for taking to the captain like that, the second said in Zerth, wavering somewhat unsteadily. Tipska, sit back down, commanded Bloom, who was genuinely starting to worry about what was about to happen. No, captain, this one here needs a lesson and respect. Tipka, an exceptionally heavy Zerth with the best of times, took two thumping steps forward barely kicking aside two of the drink containers and crushing one of the food containers beneath their foot. Up, we're in Alden's, came the halfway cry from Blum, who seemed almost frightened, but remained seated. Good, no lot to stop us. Tupka lunged and grabbed Moosen by the crown. The first Zert had circled behind, grabbed Moosen's tail, as if to try and stretch the offended Zert between them. They didn't make a move any further than that. At least... Not voluntarily. It seemed to be only a moment, and yet somehow they both yelped and released Mutum, who dropped to the floor. Both seemed intent on nursing their hands as they tried to figure out what just happened. Alden was standing there with a big hunk of the genuine Terran wood in his hand. I believe it is time you paid your tab, Alden said in a calm, almost Gentile accented common. Huh? came the only thing that came to Tipka's mind. You'll pay your tab, and you will leave, Alton commanded. Tipka would still not be in their right mind, and so they reached towards Alden to grab him by the head. Strangely, like the friendly backpat attempted from earlier, dismissed, despite nothing apparent from Alden. Alden extended a hunk of wood upwards and brought it down and the almost sickening thud upon the head of Tipka. Tipka either couldn't dodge it or chose not to, whatever the case, Tipka's fringe went pale before they collapsed to the floor in a barely contained heap of scales. The first Zert, who had been holding onto Mutham's tail, appeared somewhat frightened at this point. Mutham, to their credit, had retreated to the bar behind Alden. Alden pointed the hunk of wood to the first Zert. You will pay for both your tabs now and leave, Alden commanded. The first Zert merely nodded, the reality of the situation seeming somewhat normal although they couldn't understand why their captain hadn't moved from their spot. Alden snapped his fingers and an employee appeared with a table holding a bull which was proffered to the lone Zert. To say the Zert's fringe bulged in surprised amazement and utter terror in the same instant would be an understatement. Never before had a Zert felt like this and likely never again. At least not in any bar, on a battlefield perhaps. This, uh, uh this can't be right. The Zert protested in an almost broken common. Ah, but it is. You're not the first to break my laws, nor will you be the last. But this is my bar, and you will pay what's owed. Alden said in that same calm, aristocratic accented galactic common. Alden gestured with a hunk of wood to the sign over the bar that was translated into 35 different scripts, all of which could readily be translated into any of the other most commonly used scripts. They all spoke of the same two laws. The exact two laws that Zert was in the process of breaking. The Zert appeared to try to think, only to fail, try again, fail again, and still end up reaching for one of the worst possible conclusions any being in the room could have imagined. No, said the Zert, almost as a whisper at first, before repeating it louder. No! Blum and Mutham winced in sympathy, as the hunk of wood caught the Zert across the gut, lifting them slightly and throwing them to the side and the, to the floor, landing hard. 
The employee who had presented the tablet to the Zert pressed the tablet forced confirmation and placed the moaning but not unconscious Zert's indent hand against the payment form. The tablet chimed and then issued a kind of sad tone. Several people in the bar already knew what it was. Insufficient funds. Do you wish to use Galactic Bank credits? Asked the tablet. The Zert still appeared less than happy about being conscious, but eyed the tablet with suspicion. Glanced over at Alden, back at the tablet, and decided that the bank was a lesser opponent. Thumbing the affirmation on the tablet, it chimed happily, and the employee moved away gently, almost at odds with all else that had just happened. The two Zerts were carried out the front door and placed on a nearby transport in the direction away from Alden's. Alden's hand seemed to empty of the hunk of wood, and he quickly set about putting the table back into place and collecting the various empties, an employee helping him. Would you like a replacement drink? he asked Blum. Blum swallowed and nodded. A few moments later, a replacement drink was in front of them, and Mutham was across from them, holding a similar drink. Well, I see you remember some of the things I taught you. Mutham seemed smugged. Don't try your luck. You won't always be in Alden's. Neither will I, Blum said, a bit rougher than intended. Come now, if you got a new ship, who better to look after it than me? All I ask is to keep a legitimate, Mutham said. Not enough currency in it, muttered Blum. You just need to look in the right places, Mutham gestured towards the bar with the drink. Blum looked over at the bar where Alden winked. Blum gave it some thought. Actually, Blum gave it a lot of thought, far more than one would expect from a Zert. All right, you're in, and no rough stuff. Blum flared their fringe, as was tradition. Of course not. We're in Alden's after all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1697 No More, written by Deride Leaf Three weeks after the Moor incident, which saw the destruction of the freighter UNSCV Roger Moore with all hands as she had rammed an enemy cruiser, the last traces of the shockwave that marked the death of both vessels got torn asunder once again. With an eruption of energies that didn't even have names a few years ago, a behemoth vessel dropped out of faster-than-night travel with pinpoint accuracy. The blocky gunmetal grey hull gleamed in the dim light of the system's primary sun, and her sides were adorned with the same UNSNV Mothra. She was a vanguard of a smaller armada of equally utilitarian-looking vessels of many shapes and sizes that emerged from the FTL in flashes and eruptions of energy all around the behemoth vessel. The Mothra wasn't the largest ship in the fleet, and several larger vessels took up defensive postures around her but she was amongst the more imposing ones. Smaller vessels flitted around like hunting dogs around their master's heels, every bit of their posture showing their eagerness for action. Each of the three dozen ships made small corrections to their positioning relative to each other as they turned their bows to face the planet orbiting the distant star. All along the hulls of the vessels, sensor pods and weapon placements made lazy sweeps of the surrounding space and none of the vessels made even a token attempt to hide their presence. On the contrary, the engines put out their sensors and targeting systems shone out like a beacon, challenging the local occupation fleet to come and face this emerging fleet. No formal declaration of war had been made, yet that was about to change.
On the bridge of the Mothra, a door slid open with a sound that most people didn't even remember why it was added to the sliding doors. Some said that it was an ancient tradition, yet others claimed that it was a practical joke that became a tradition. Either way, the door's distinctive sound heralded the arrival of a clearly inhuman figure. Skittering into the relatively cramped bridge on six segmented legs was the assigned liaison for the force. Ambassador Ray's unflattering leaves on peaceful day, or Ambassador Race for short, swiveled her eye stalks around and find her assigned place. An area of the bridge had been cleared of the seats that simply could not accommodate her almost arachnid body shape. Her other eye stalk turned backwards as one of the human crew members made a sound that the Ambassador had been told entailed adoration and pleasure. Oh! Look at that! That is so cute! The human that had spoken had blushed with both of his ambassador's eye-stalks focused their gaze in form. Uh, uh, sorry. I, uh, I apologize. Uh, I, I could not, uh, I'm, uh, I, uh, I mean, uh. The human crew member flushed with a display that the ambassador was briefed on as being awkward and shameful. Ambassador Ray stepped over to her destination and then chittered into a translator, even as one of her manipulator limbs reached back to adjust a small brood of hatchlings that clung to her carapace. No apologies needed. I am well aware of the response humans have to our younglings. Her carapace changed color to a soothing color as she continued to earth her gaze moving away from the crew member to scan across the bridge. These humans still surprised her. Their shapes were so alien to her. But then again, she looked just as alien to them. One of the humans she had once met told her that she looked like a giant spider wearing a crab suit, and was intrigued that she had to look up the referenced Earth animals. Convergent revolution was really something. Earth was what the cradle of humanity and also gave rise to the animals that looked strikingly familiar to her kind. It was in part due to these mysterious comparisons and familiarity they brought that humanity and her race had fostered such a warm bond so quickly. Although she had heard there was a small set of humans that had a near-visceral fear response to her kind, she personally hadn't met any of these so-called arachnophobes yet. Her hatchlings that clung to her back carapace fussed and chirped for nourishment, and with a little self-conscious scan of her surroundings, she relaxed an organ that would fill the small reservoir with nutrient fluid for her hatchlings to feed upon. Her manipulator arms were on reflex adjusting the cloth drape that covered her rear carapace to seclude her brood from prying eyes. The ambassador's attention got drawn away from her brood as the commander of the vessel strode onto the bridge. A human guard bellowed out a call for attention that had the members of the crew not currently tapping away at their consoles turn to salute the imposing female commander as she arrived. Her hand returned the salute and then waved dismissively as she spoke. As you were, status report please. The commander asked as she walked over to the large center console that detailed the fleet's composition, an aide joining her with a smaller data pad and speaking up in an almost casual tones. Deacceleration completed on schedule and we're on target. Acceptable drift and green across the fleet, ma'am. System garrison is on scopes and the bears are responding. We count approximately 50 ships in the standard formation clawing their way out of the gravity well towards us, ma'am. The aide grinned which made the scars on his face deform as he continued. Our pickets beyond that target system are reporting movements of the ships as well, so we estimate another two dozen ships vectoring in. No ETA on them yet. 
But the Teddy Garrison will be in effective range in about 20 minutes, ma'am. The commander nodded and then rubbed her hands together. All right. So we have a little time to burn. Status and Task Force Newton. Newton is on station and deploying as planned, ma'am, Captain Raymond added. And I quote, Locked and cocked and ready to rock, ma'am. The grizzled aide could not hide his mirth at getting to relay that message, and the ambassador noticed little smiles and straightening spines all around the bridge crew. Good, good. All the pieces are set, almost time for our glorious first act. The commander turned her head towards the ambassador and inclined her head in a show of respect. Ambassador Reyes, is everything in order on your end? Reyes dipped the front of her body downwards in a mimicry of a human body language, as it was rather hard to nod if one didn't have a separate head to do so. No errant waves in my path, ma'am. All is fine. With a smile still curling her lips, the human commander raised herself up to her full imposing height and walked over to the main communications display. The technicians were there were only needed a glance from the warrior woman to open a channel to the whole system. Every crew member visibly sat straighter and almost held their breath. History was about to be made. Humanity had enjoyed an era of peace, but after today, that peace would be no more. As the communications channel was opened, the growling voice of the local garrison leadership sounded out. The emotionless translation followed a half-second after the growls and ramblings. Human Master, you are in violation of our claimed borders. You have... The translator hiccuped at this point, and the commander's side glanced towards the communication tank that just shrugged and looked at the ambassador Reyes in return. Reyes, on her part, just spoke up with a About three of your minutes. Then a low voice to which the commander nodded and focused her attention on the incoming message. To change your course and spool out your drives, or you will be fired upon. The commander took a deep breath as the garrison's message repeated itself and then muttered a showtime under her breath before rising her voice. This is commander of the UN Task Force 12. To anyone on this channel, we are here to deliver a message. Please forward what I'm about to say to your high command authority. The commander paused for a brief moment, and then continued with a solemn tone to her voice. Humanity is new to the galactic stage, but we are blessed to have made our first contact with the Federation of Radiant Explorers Traversing the Void, or as we call them, the Crabs. We have traded with them for half a generation now, and they are our closest friends. On behalf of the United Nations of Sol, the Alpha Centauri Commonwealth, and the myriad independent systems of the Outer Rim Alliance, I now bring you a message. The commander's voice took on a lower tone as she reached to brush her fiery red hair out of her eyes, the tribal ink markings etched into her chin, giving her a menacing countenance that sent a small shiver of appreciation through Ambassador Ray's carapace. We stood idly by as you invaded the Federation systems, but no more. You burned their cities and enslaved their people, but no more. We are ashamed and have a debt to repay to our allies. We are peaceful by choice, but due to your actions, no more. This day at this hour, we send a message to you. Your invasion ends Yeah, We will not ask you to withdraw here today. We don't need to. The commander's lips curled into a near predatory grin as the local garrison leader actually had the audacity to interrupt a speech. The growls sounded angered and upset as they bellowed out, 
Who are you to make these challenges? We will burn your ship from the void and cast you into the nether that you spawn from. The commander barked out a small laugh and raised her voice into the bellow that rivaled that of the alien bear on the other end of the link. Who am I? I will tell you. I have been chosen to speak for all of humanity. My name, Admiral Amatola Mauga Santiago O'Malley. You killed our friends. Prepare to die. The last word was spoken with a deadly calm, finality. Without prompting, the tech closed the channel, cutting off the enraged and confused fellows of the garrison leader. Admiral O'Malley turned on their heels and nodded for a first officer. The EXO in turn tapped on his console and spoke up while the rest of the bridge crew sprung into action like a well-oiled machine. Mothra to fleet, weapons free, I repeat. Designate all hostiles and weapons free. Space around the human fleet tore and twisted as weapons lanced out. Laser, plasma, and a good old-fashioned metal slugs shot out to roar their displeasure at the garrison's fleet that was still clawing their way into range. Shields flared on an imposing hulls of the invaders' ships, and in places, the mighty armor of the vessels glowed and buckled as human ingenuity and weapon design struck home. Few ships slowed and veered off as damage was sustained to their drives and navigation, but most simply bulled their way through the barrage from the human interlopers. The bear-like crews of the invader ships roared their challenges as their own weapons started to return fire, and the battle was joined in earnest. Two fleets holding position near each other and slinging death back and forth. This was a battle the bears knew. They had always fought this way, and their superior weapons and armors had always carried the day against the Federation fleets. As their weapons fire struck home, several of the human vessels drifted out of formation, their armor rent and torn asunder. The sight excited the invaders as their morale rose to a fever pitch. On board Mothra, Ambassador Array steadied herself as the ship shook under the impact of plasma bolt that would have cored a Federation corvette lengthwise, but the human vessel just took a hit with minimal damage. The bridge crew calmly gave each other damage reports and updates on system states, while Razor's eye stalks focused on Admiral Amatola, who almost passively listened to her aide, giving her status reports. The Arizona reports a loss of atmosphere in three decks. She's pivoting to the broadside to keep in fight. We've lost the Aleppo, lucky hit on a reactor, but the engineers prevented a meltdown, and the crew has been evacuated. No engineers survive. The Molino is adjusting to cover the lifeboats. Admiral Amatola nodded and tapped the screen in front of her to get an overview of her fleet's positions, then nodded again before speaking up. Okay, gentle beings. We gave them the taste of their own playbook, and it's one we know. Now history is full of fleets duking in out this way. But no more. Let's dance, shall we? The word is given. Execute. Ambassador Ray flushed with a brief bright neon color display as the human at the helm of the gargantuan ship gave an almost giddy-sounding battle cry and spent the next two heartbeats trying to calm her hatchlings as the whole ship vibrated and shook. Her eye stalks fell on the essential display and narrowed in shock. Details of the redoubts, just not computing. The human ships, as one, moved, surging forward on great plumes of their drives in a near-suicidal charge at the enemy's fleet. 
but they didn't charge in a straight line for long, because a mere few heartbeats later, the whole fleet broke up into pairs and small formations of ships that pivoted and danced around the invader ships. Many a human ship got caught by enemy fire, but in several cases, the hulk of the dead human ship took one or two of the invaders down with it as they plowed themselves into the tight formation. Other ships invaded fire and just unloaded their weapons at near-point-blank rages into the invader cruisers and battleships, overloading the mighty shields and armor with a sheer volume of fire and fury. But then... The human ships were behind the invader ships, and again as one, they swiveled in place. Their momentum carried them forward while their bulk traversed to face the enemy once more. Weapons launched out in the vulnerable enemy rears, and the invaders were slow to respond. Their doctrine worked against them in the face of near-suicidal human tactics. Ship after ship drifted out of formation or blossomed into gouts of flame, radiation, and blinding light. Ambassador Ray marveled at it. All while around her, the human bridge crew never lost their calm. Some even joked amongst themselves for one second, then solemnly reported the loss of a nearby ship. The scene made Ray's intermost core twitched with worry as she realized she was the first of her kind to witness this side of humanity. Her species had seen humans as peculiar kind of mediocre beings, new to the galaxy, young Naive, even. But no more. An alert blared out and Ray saw the Admiral's aide bringing up a warring sight on the main display. Enemy reinforcements just dropped in our flank, ma'am. Initial tally, 12 ships, cruiser weights, end up. The Admiral tapped a console and licked her lips and thought, Comms, open a channel to Newton. Channel open, ma'am. Martha to Newton. We have some party crashes on our flank. See them. The Admiral's voice made Ray swivel the eye stalks around in confusion. Why did she sound so casual? Newton to Mothra. Captain Raymond here, ma'am. Y yes, we do see them. Admiral O'Malley actually chuckled as she replied, Well, uh, I don't want to. Yes, ma'am, came the enthusiastic reply from the comm channel, and Ambassador Ray noticed a new marker on the edge of the central console suddenly flaring to life. Before the voice of Captain Raymond continued, Baggage on way, clear the lane. A smaller display opened up in the central console, and Ray's carapace flashed a shocked dark indigo as she tried to make sense of what she saw. Several smaller human vessels, civilian models as far as Ray's could tell, were shown maneuvering a few dozen asteroids around in tow cables and a large industrial manipulator arms. Then most of the asteroids suddenly vanished in a telltale flashes of an FTL drive initiation. The next thing Ambassador Ray's noticed was the entire bridge crew giving a jubilant intake of breath and in exclamations of HELL YEAH and variations. On the main display, twelve reinforced invader ships blossomed into small novas of expanding plasma and fury, and the Ambassador just stared in mute shock and disbelief at the spectacle. The grizzled Admiral's aide spoke up of his own accord as it glanced at the awestruck Ambassador. We fitted some small FTL drives to the few rocks. Makes for a nice surprise, don't you agree? Once the bears learn how to fight on the move, that trick will stop working. But for now, it works. Another voice broke through Razor's shock as she shook her body to clear her mind. No more enemies in system or on scopes. The other fleet elements have been vectoring in. Change course when the flanking force went dark. Bears are in full retreat and their planetary forces are signaling their surrender. 
Admiral turned towards Ambassador and bowed before her. Accept our apologies for not doing this sooner, ma'am. We humans have been negligent in our alliance, but no more. We are in this fight now, and we will not rest until the invasion of your systems and territories is repulsed. We are passive. No longer. And thus, humanity's first true interstellar war began. The coming months and years would see victories, defeats, triumphs, and tragedies. But one thing prevailed. Before the war, all the species that knew of the human thought of them as the naive newcomers, upstarts with quirky technology and ingrained insanity for exploration and progress. Harmless, hairless bipeds with mediocre technology and illusions of grandeur beyond their station. But as the war dragged on, more and more of the human mindset got revealed. The other empires learned and realized their mistake. Humans had been overlooked, discarded, and dismissed. But no more. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1698. Story number one. Their specialization, written by Cobalt Sky. It is thought that the most advanced piece and tech that civilization makes is good representation of them. And for the three major races in the Galactic Confederation, that technology was a specialized version of an FTL drive. Starting with the sharp-minded Nivlans, who themselves were a cliff-dwelling species that by galactic standards are small, around 50% smaller than average, and thus much of their technology represents that. When the Nivlans reached prominence in the stars and developed an FTL drive, they optimized for size. Compared to the other two dominant species, it is almost a fourth the size without any loss of power. This allows ships equipped with their drive to be smaller, or more likely repurposed to left over room for some things like cargo or luxury cabins. Then there are the Zarok, who have a home world with lots of space, but very little in the way of useful resources. There are many barren graven fields of little more than limestone and harsh mountains on their home. Thus, they needed to make every ounce of iron and other elements count. This almost zealot-like efficiency is proudly on display in their FTL. The Zarak drive can travel the same distance as others, but with about two-thirds the fuel. That may not seem like much, but when you are talking millions of tons of metallic hydrogen to move a bulk cargo liner, that is an astronomical savings. And then my people, the Yelves, who have a whole world covered in large open grasslands and is also home to the massive avian predator. Due to this threat, we grew to be extremely fast sprinters, so that our ancestors could dart back to the burrows before getting snatched into the purple sky. So, when we took over that sky, our ancestors feared that we put our speed into our drives. Our drives are on average 10 to 15% faster than other models. This is awesome for smaller transports and passenger vessels, as well as valuable cargo as it limits the amount of time, but it might be intercepted. There are a handful of space-bound peoples, but many of them are not yet at the point of developing their own specialized FTL. And for the time, all are more than happy to use the models that the three major races are offering. Then, just 65 cycles back, our community met the humans. They were odd but not too weird. When we discovered them, they had spread out through their home system and had a small foothold in the next star system over. As expected, 
They were still using skipper drives, which are simpler to discover, but far less useful and flexible to the point drives that are the standard for FTL. Both contact went extremely well, and besides, a bit of shock from the historians about the human past, when that was cleared up and with the hesitant go-ahead from the historians, they were invited to our little confederation. Things started to get interesting when we offered to sell them point drives for their ships. You see, most species before them that were offered the drives were overjoyed and more than happy to buy them. I mean, why would they not be? The difference between the two was like trying to run underwater compared to running on a low-gravity moon. But the humans were not so interested in the drives and instead wanted the information on how they were manufactured. We tried to explain that they needed to expand their industry far past where they were to even come close to what was required to make point drives. But they still insisted on one diplomat saying, Just sell them to us and if we cannot do it, we'll have to come back to buy them from you, so I don't see why you have a problem with this. So we all agreed to sell the data on how to make point drives along with a handful of drives to retrofit in their current ships. We soon learned that humans are very good at mining and resource extraction, as our trade and soon became an impressive trading partner for such a new people. Along with the usual things that they were buying, they bought many point drives from us, and we all but forgot about we ever sold the basic instructions on how to make them. Then the truly unexpected happened. The human diplomat invited some of the other species to see the newest breakthrough. I was no engineer, but even I could see that it was abomination of a point drive. But it worked. It was almost one-third bigger than the standard drive, and as some engineers we brought pointed out, was 4% slower and 5% less fuel efficient than average. Despite all of this, the ambassador and the crew of the ship were beaming with pride, and we could not deny that it was impressive that a species with now just three solar systems had managed to produce a functioning point drive. About a month later, we would learn that they had already specialized their drive. When the first reports started coming in from our traders working with humans, we did not take a single word as more than shock trader trying to get through the shock of a narrow escape. These reports were all pertaining to pirate attacks and how, when the pirates targeted, then got a good hit on the human drives to disable them was a common practice for pirates. They were still able to jump away. No one on the council thought that this was true. But as we asked the ambassador, and he said, Yes, that's all true. Give me a couple days and I can show you. True to his word, a couple of days later, a smoking trade ship docked with a station that served as a confederation meeting place. We then were invited on board this obviously damaged ship. The captain introduced themselves and explained that they just got away from a group of pirates and headed there as the ambassador's request. When we got to the engine room, I think one of the Zarek engineers who was accompanying me nearly passed out. To our left was what was obviously a hull breach patched with void foam. In front of us was one of the human-built FTL drives with a massive hole in the side. The captain introduced us to the head engineer who elaborated that they had got hit with a railgun and the slug was still in the FTL drive. True to her word, you could still see the glowing lump of slag and the projectile in the hole. The engineer also went on to tell us that they were submitting a complaint with the drive's manufacturer, as they lost 40% efficiency after the strike, but the manufacturer said that they would lose only 
What kind of insanity is that their biggest problem is 10% less efficiency? Man, they still had a smoking hole in the side of their FTL drive. End of story. Story number two. The safest mode of galactic travel. Written by Dynama R. DMC walks from backstage. Applause. Welcome, welcome. Tonight I want to tell you about the latest, newest, and safest way to travel in the galaxy. Applause. Now, as you know, space is a very dangerous place. So vast and cold, standard ships could not generate enough heat to stay warm. Up to 30% of travelers would succumb to the freezing temperatures. That all changed when we found the humans. Applause. Because of energy required to leave a planet, all life that has been encountered in space has been small. The humans are huge. We will not discuss the crazy things that they do to get off their planet. Not. Because of their ship, their ships have to be huge, and as such they have to have large engines that generate lots of heat. Since they took over the space travel in the galaxy, there have been no deaths from freezing. But space is still a dangerous place. Micrometeorites, spontaneous black holes, solar bursts, and cosmic strings, just to name a few. The MC takes a drink of liquid, allowing the last remark to sink in and increase the attention the audience will give his next words. But we now introduce you to the safest way to travel. Do not just travel in a human ship, but travel inside a human ship, in a human ship. That's right, you will be given your very own luxury pod full of amenities to keep you occupied on your voyage. Very spacious, 3 millimeters long by 1.5 millimeters wide. For just a little more, we can upgrade you to a larger size of 5 millimeters. That includes a servant to cook and clean for you. Applause. Your pod will be injected into a human just under the skin in a fatty layer of tissue. It will provide a constant environment to make your trip as comfortable as possible. Should there be an accident during your travels, being inside a human increases the likelihood of your survival by 1,000%. As you know, humans are from a death world and they are capable of surviving in the harshest of environments. Being inside a human gives you a level of safety that you cannot get from any machine. Their ability to generate heat, to cool down and survive in the conditions that would kill most intelligent life. Make them the ideal carrier. Applause. And if you want more added protection, just for a few more credits, you can be injected into a human called a Marine. They are trained to survive things other humans would succumb to and can guarantee your safe arrival. Applause. Now, make sure you ask for the subdermal human interstellar travel system when you book your next travel plans and have the safest trip in the galaxy. Applause. The viewer's screen changes to a company name along with an acronym for the newest, most popular way to travel. Galactic Alliance Shuttle Systems. The S-H-I-T-S. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1699. Cleaners, written by Yoshi Man. Sunlight. It was an alien feeding to Borno. 
who'd spent so much time outside the already crater complex under the dark amalgamations of radioactive debris and viral spores that had enveloped Typhon skies for the past century. He felt an environmental frame spin up its temperature control systems, feeling the freezing coolant pass through his undersuit as the raw sunlight, unfiltered by the ozone layer long since dissipated to nuclear fire, began to sear his frame. Yet the temperature to him felt almost like bliss. It must have been 70 degrees Celsius outside his frame, a refreshing temperature in comparison to the boiling and freezing extremes that regularly subsumed the crater. Yet, he couldn't waste time bathing in the sun. He still had so much to do before he was meant to leave. As he hurried down the path as best he could, in his clunky frame, he noticed a group of humans around the hillside drone port, preparing to unload one of the larger armored cargo drones that had just arrived from orbit. He saw one of the humans rigged in a larger frame, more akin to an exoskeleton, grab a power washer. They then proceeded to wipe down the drone, ridding it of any residual radioactive fallout the drone may have caught during its re-entry. They were well equipped in similar environmental gear that Bruno wore, yet adorned with the recognizable symbol of their organization, a dark red circle with a tree emanating in the center. Gaia's Directive. That's what the name he'd been plastered around their facilities and gear. They had no clue what it actually meant, yet they never seemed to acknowledge the name, using it only on official documents and reports. Instead, they referred to themselves by another name. Cleaners. Excuse me, I'm looking for Rosa Fornetta. Any of you guys seen her? He called out to the band of humans on his frame speaker. Oh, uh, she's a bit down from the hillside. One of the humans called out, equipped in a bulky matte-white environmental frame. It pointed at a recently installed drone hangar further down the hill, where a group of humans seemed to be in the middle of a discussion near several large hexapedal automatons. She's just talking to the techs about getting her echobots to scrounge up the fallout around here. They should be finishing up now. Thank you. Borno called out to the human, waving a goodbye as he started to walk down the metal stairs that had only recently been installed against the hard basalt stone that made up the crater. He took another glance at the small patch of sunshine, where the light grey haze of the upper atmosphere could be seen. Yet, as he gazed at the rapturous sight above, he also made out a few faint shining silhouettes. At first, he thought that it was just graphite particles in the air, sparkling against the sun's rays. Yet, as he magnified his visor at the phenomenon, he suddenly realized what he was seeing. There were hundreds of them, if not thousands, coursing in the chaotic stream above Typhon's atmosphere. It suddenly connected with him. They were terraforming satellites, massive kilometer-sized instruments dedicated to reversing the decay of Typhon's once habitable atmosphere. Instruments must have led to the small patch of sunlight on this dead world. And it hasn't even been a year yet, Borno thought. Twenty years at the complex and the best he'd done as director was stem the radioactive pollutants gushing from the ancient crumbling reactors and find the remaining seed bolts on Typhon's extinct flora and fauna. And here the humans were, showing him up, accomplishing something he hadn't done in only a year. Not that he minded it. 
They were truly mad for trying to tame Typhon. The fact that they were doing it charge-free made Borno a bit suspicious. But it seemed those in office didn't care. Probably more interested in securing the next election than paying attention to extra solar security. It didn't change the fact that the humans were starting to make serious developments. Just a kilometer beyond him stood a near-complete skeleton for a terraforming plant. It was an ugly thing to look at, made out of prefabricated paneling, 3D-printed scaffolding, and copious amounts of ferrocrete, with numerous bulking wires and tubing lining its superstructure. Its contents made up with its hideous nature, four gigawatts worth of molten salt reactors, monstrosities in their own right set to power the nascent rings of the air scrubbers around the crater, dedicated to pulling in radioactive debris and pumping it back into the plant, where the air would be purified, then transformed into ozone, which would then be discharged high into the stratosphere. It was meant to be the first step towards heating Typhon back to its once pristine state, though by itself it wouldn't have any impact on heating the planet. That's why the humans were planning to build thousands of terraforming plants across the planet, and they had just set up a baseline capability to start mass-producing these engineering monstrosities. Hello! Borna yelled out to the group, facing down the shoddy concrete path leading to the hangar. I is there a Rosa Fonetta here? That would be me, one of the bulky figures responded, being noticeably smaller than both him and the surrounding humans. This figure seemed to be at the top of the command chain, with a frame expressing her rank of director, like himself. Borno finished walking down the hillside paving and made his way towards the humans. Apologies for the interruption, but my frame's radio system broke down when I was coming back from the seed vault in Kilnu. I just need to have a quick word with you. No, it's fine. I was just finishing here anyway. The lead human responded, calmly signaling the other humans away. All right, well, uh, Rosa, uh, can I call you that? Feel free. No need for formalities here. Her voice suddenly became crisp as he heard his frame notify him of an audio connection between the two frames. Well, first of all, here's the data drive in question, Borno began, handing over the old drive strapped onto his side. We were able to scrounge it up alongside the last batch of samples from the vault. It has all the old climatology models and data from Typhon's healthier days. There's around 100 or so report outlining the planetary carbon cycle, point of key, ecological focus, atmospheric weather phenomena, and more. Everything you guys might need in trying to tame Typhon. Wait, Director Borno, if I remember. She pondered, taking the data drive and magnetically locking it to her frame's thigh. He quickly realized that the humans had no way of really knowing who they were talking to, as his crew didn't have any officials insignia to determine rank or status. Borno chuckled as the rather small human gave him an inquisitive gaze. Her pale facial features made clear through the transparent visor that she wore. That's me. Though the director title won't be there much longer. Oh, no. Oh. Before I forget here, Borno continued, searching in one of the frame's protective pockets before he fetched out a small USB stick. You're going to want to relay that to your guy's robots. One of your IT guys told me to give it to you, seeing how you're the only one with full administrative clearance. Supposedly, it's meant to allow them to detect viral spore growth and stuff, reducing both the risk of viral exposure and something like that. Oh, thank you, she said, 
immediately plugging in the USB's contents into a frame before any radioactive elements could affect its stored information. Still, uh, why the emotion? It's no emotion, he said, smiling upon seeing the concerned demeanor of the human, though not sure if she could see him through the worn-out visor. Set to leave in just a few days, apparently to supervise a para-terraforming job on one of the dwarf planets. Rosa peeked her head. Leaving so soon? She puzzlingly asked. We haven't even gotten started on the real work yet. Of course, this wasn't real work to them. As if setting up a colony-sized industrial base on a hellish rock like Typhon in only a year wasn't or some sort of phenomenal accomplishment. There wasn't even mentioning everything that they'd done in orbit. He'd seen the images, entire fleets worth of orbital constructions assembling vast orbital shades and terraforming satellites. All of this in a year, and the humans had been planning this project to take centuries. Just the thought of it gave Borno a warm feeling inside. Perhaps life might return to this planet one day. It's not just me, he replied, backtracking from his thoughts. The entire site is being transferred to you guys as per the agreement, meaning that my crew is going to be dissolved, taking us and our own lonesome ways across the system. He felt his frame slowly start to warm up pulling out a coolant while having the internal radiator start warming his undersuit. His frame, red off that cold front, was meant to be blowing in soon, with a chill of minus 34 degrees, with a high of concentrated viral spores. Oh, Rosa mumbled, a hint of disappointment in her voice. I was under the impression that you guys would be working alongside us for the long term, especially considering all the help that you've given us in this year alone. The truth is that we were meant to leave three weeks after you guys officially got the go-ahead on terraforming this husk. The thing is, I've continuously extended the deadline, he explained. Couldn't just let you folk waste years just to get where we were. Oh, Rose's eyebrows peaked in surprise. Well, thanks. You guys have been a great help. Though um, I'm surprised you got your crew to go along with the extensions. Borno smiled. Typhon's a radioactive dumpster fire, but... A lot of us have our ancestry here, including myself. Uh, we all want to see this place healed. And everyone was willing to spend just a bit more time here to set you guys up with the best chance of seeing that vision through. So, um, you were born here? Oh, souls no, he started, turning his view away from Rose's frame to gaze at the scorched wasteland beyond the complex. I was born in a makeshift orbital a few years after Typhon's demise an orbital manufacturing platform turned refugee center. Parents were one of the lucky few that were able to catch the lost shuttles out before things escalated to thermonuclear war. As a kid, they would always tell me stories about Typhon. The stuff of fantasy and history. Stories about the great sky bison that once roamed across the sky. All the tales of the first explorers and Typhon and their magical discoveries. Sometimes... I would spend hours looking at Typhon, either through external cameras or old-school glass windows, dreaming about the stories my parents had told me and thinking, what if we could go back? So is everyone else like you, wanting to stay in their ancestral homeland? Rose a question. Ancestral homeland. The wording had his eyes roam across the barren rock and soil, looking at the various old electrical pylons, roads, and buildings whose remains still stood strong, even under the century-long siege by the harsh elements. 
remnants of a world long since past to nuclear fire. Well, kind of. Most people are like me, having some sort of inclination towards Typhon, Berno said with a hint of pride. Makes sense when you think about it. For every year a person stays on Typhon, it's said that they lose four years of their life. Is it true? Maybe. Typhon has racked up quite a, the reputation over the years. Even then, it is rumored like that which led people to never accept a posting on Typhon. Except people like me. It's just when you know what this planet was once like, because... Well, I can't really explain it in words. But you just find yourself uh, naturally attracted to her. Rosa gave a nodding gesture. I feel you. Always odd people like us who take on these tasks. I wouldn't say odd people, he chuckled. More like people who long for the past. Well, you should try and stick around just a little while longer. We're having a party at the terraforming plant at the end of the week. Popping open the bottles for a year's worth of work well done. It would be a damn shame if you guys weren't present. The help you guys have given us has easily shaved decades in planning and research alone. Borna felt a slight burn in his heart, knowing that he would be leaving Typhon, his work, and all the people he'd come to call friends. I'd love to do that, really, he said chuckling. The only issue is that if I delay our move one more time, I might actually get fired this time, for real. Why not join us then? She bluntly suggested, her blue eyes giving him a genuine look. You mean join you guys, uh, uh, like your organization? Yes. It's obvious that you and your crew are dedicated to Typhon. The fact that you've been putting off a transfer for a year now already shows that. Plus, you didn't seem so enthusiastic about the para-terraforming gig. So, uh, why not join us? Well, out of everything he had expected before today, a job offer was not one of them. It wasn't to say that he wasn't interested in the human's proposal. He made a hefty amount as a site director, especially with those juicy hazard pay bonuses. Come on, Rosa said naggingly, her frame's posture becoming more casual. It's clear that you see Typhon as your home, and wouldn't you like to see your childhood dream through? The return of this place back to its glory days. He hung his head down for a second of contemplation, trying to evaluate his own feelings towards the idea of staying on Typhon. Look, us humans have a saying, home is where the heart is. You treat Typhon as your home because it's where your heart is tied the most to. The effort you've already put in to this entire operation says enough about it. Your childhood had you immerse yourself in stories, tales of people and cultures who called Typhon their home. And through this, you became a surrogate of Typhon itself, whether you knew it or not. I mean, I, I, I never really saw you seen myself as a person of Typhon. Then what do you think of yourself as? The question hit Borno like a hard rock. It was one of those questions that he and his crew would always subconsciously ignore. Because, in their eyes, they were all kin. And kin never questioned the fundamentals of home and belonging. The orbital he'd once been born in had been decommissioned only seven years after he was born. Otherwise, he had lived across the belt as a teenager, going from cozy little asteroid habitat to massive protoplanet-sized refinery stations. Yet... He never really thought of himself as one of them, never embraced the culture, the dialect, or even the language. In the end, he'd always drifted back to Typhon, one way or another, just like his parents. Rosa looked at him with a gaze of sympathy. You're not sure, are you? 
He wasn't sure if it was his visor or his body language that had made it seem so obvious to her. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized that he honestly had no clue what he really was. Let me ask you another question then. Do you really want to leave this planet? The answer was already evident to both of them, but it was clear that Rosa just wanted him to say it. No. No, no, I don't, he admitted. But, uh, I have to leave if I want to survive any longer. It was once the cold realities of working in environments as hazardous as Typhon. Technology wasn't perfect. Sometimes it was material fatigue that got you killed. Other times it was tiny millimeter-sized scrapes and cuts that sent people to the grave. No matter how much time you put into maintaining your frame, being cautious on where you stepped, or limiting your exposure to the fallout, it was only a matter of time before the planet consumed you. No amount of iodine pills and antiviral medication would stop that. Every year, somebody would die. Their bodies burned and their frames buried outside the complex, each entombed within the empty visor marking their graves. And he'd seen the same with humans. Graves slowly started to emerge outside the temporary hab complexes they had established on the other side of the crater. So what? The response felt like a mental kick in the knee. Well, that's a frank way to respond, he slowly muttered. Rosa seemed honestly surprised at how he was taken aback by the statement. What's the deal? We work in a toxic, radioactive hellscape. Death is a risk that we take with every step we take. Why are you all of a sudden scared of your own mortality? The threat of death should be no reason to stop the work that we're doing here. No, 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 it's not that. I'm not afraid of death, he expressed with a growing strain in his throat. The fact that I've stuck it out here for 20 years should be evidence of that. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, I, uh, I want to die having accomplished something, he finally croaked. Have my legacy be more than just a footnote, you, you know? He gazed out at the encroaching fog, breezing through the mountain and valleys, slowly advancing towards the outer ring of the air scrubbers. Twenty years of work here, and nothing has changed. The soil is still dead, the air is still poison, and the sky still lays black. There was an intermittent moment of silence between the two, as they both gazed at the fog from afar. I know progress is a fickle thing, Warner continued, but it's going to take decades before we see even the slightest sign of progress, and by that time my luck will have run out, leaving me to join my comrades in the soil below. Might as well try and get something to my legacy, to have a few geoengineering and terraforming projects imbued with my name on them, so that someday someone will look upon my work and know that I existed. When you put it like that, I can see where you're coming from, Rosa replied, a palpable sense of compassion in her voice. The task that you and I have taken upon ourselves is that of moving mountains. To measure our progress through superficial looks alone doesn't reflect the task at hand. Rather, look at the consistency of which we strive forwards in this colossal undertaking of ours. Still, I want to be remembered, have something to my name, some place in history. You and I... We are history, written in the fabric through flesh and bone, Rosa pronounced in a stoic voice, filled with a zealous determination that he hadn't expected from her. We shape this world for those who will come after us, to be a cradle for children that we will never see or hear. She gestured out to the wasteland beyond, as if she was some prophet presenting her followers paradise. 
There was a charismatic way in which she talked, like that of a politician, conviction radiating from her form that seemed to rival the sun in radiance. Still, the zenitry of which she spoke had borne no suppress a chuckle at the vision of it all. That's a bit grandiose, don't you think? Look above, all the way up, at the sky, Rosa said, evidently ignoring his comment as she pointed towards a small gap of light that still pierced through the choking black clouds. The storm abates, and the dust settles through the collective sweat, blood and tears. He heard his frame slowly rigging off warnings about rising background radiation and spore concentration in the air, turning him to seek shelter. Yet, he ignored it, savoring every second as he bathed in the sun's embrace. The sun, doesn't it look wonderful? He and his eyes focused on the cobalt shine of the sun's rays, admiring its brief appearance in the sky above. Yeah, it's definitely something I can get used to. But think of what it stands for, Rosa remarked, her visor turning an accent of chrome as she stared at the open patch of light. A flare in the dark, a sign of hope that one day the light would breach across the veil of darkness that was shrouded this banner for too long. Through the combined labor of generations, this will be achieved. The words resonated with him, giving his heart a rhythmic beat he hadn't felt for some time. The idea of working towards something greater, the dream of a legacy that would span generations, it started to feel like her conviction alone was enough to move mountains. It still sounded a bit fantastical, like some overpromised visionary who could speak but not act. Being a bit zealous, don't you think? It seemed as if Rosa had just realized the tone of her ramblings, as the zealous conviction that filled her face slowly started to dissipate. A bit, yeah, she chuckled. But when your family's been striving towards the same thing for generations, the mythos of it all starts to get to you. Same thing? As in Typhon? No, not that. Typhon will be my goal, yes, yet. It will only serve to pave the way for the final project. It took Borno a few seconds to connect the dots before he realized what she meant. He didn't know much about human history, but everyone knew about Earth. You honestly think that it can be done? I've seen the videos of it. It makes Typhon seem like a paradise in comparison to it. There was a sorrowful smile on Rose's face. My father was a cleaner, just like me purifying worlds so that the children could one day play in the groves planted by the likes of us. His father was the same, and so was his father before that, all in the goal of one day stepping back on the soil that made us who we are, the dream that one day children would breathe on a green earth. Only then will the bones of our forefathers rest satisfied that their sacrifice was not in vain. There was a weight in her words, the weight of generations worth of lives dedicated to one dream, one goal. Typhon is an opportunity for us all, she continued, her voice radiating a sense of determination and conviction, an opportunity to rectify a monumental folly of a generation past for all to see, to show that even worlds as lost as Typhon can be cleaned and healed. It's opportunities like this that help us grow through experience and knowledge and through the work that's done here will allow our descendants to push ever further in the dream of a green earth. That will be my legacy, a legacy engraved into the very history of earth itself. That's one philosophical way to say it, Morna remarked with a smile. I'm starting to see your point, you and I, 
are both cleaners, as you humans love to put it. We work for different organizations, yet in the end we seek to wipe our ancestors' debt, to relive what has not been lived for centuries. Rosa grinned as she finished talking, poetically said, even if you just copied what I said beforehand, maybe. Or maybe I'm just starting to get it now, he playfully retorted. There was a brief moment of silence as they both reflected on each other's words before Rosa turned towards him and placed her frame's bulky hand on his shoulder. My offer. Go give it a thought. Talk it over with your crew. I'm in Hab 4 if you ever want to talk about it more. She patted him on the shoulder, the audible hydraulics of her frame marking each step as she headed back towards the confines of the drone hangar, leaving him all by himself, watching as the dark clouds slowly started to envelop the last open patches of light. Cleaners! The word was starting to resonate with him. It was one thing to terraform or geoengineer a world, yet to clean it was a whole other task. It had him look at the left corner of his visor, where a tape picture sat. It wasn't something people could notice when they looked at him and his visor, but he always found himself gazing at it from time to time. It was a worn-out picture of a beautiful crimson forest, that of an ancient grove filled with a breathtaking flora that seemed almost dreamlike in its design. In the foreground of the picture stood two people, both smiling as they stood in a surreal aura of the forest. The founders of the Areli Crater Complex. His mother and father, the first cleaners of Typhon. One day, he quietly whispered. One day. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1700. Story number one. Explosive problem solving, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. Jonathan sat at his workbench, tinkering with the next iteration of the Face Melter 5000 TM. As sparks flew off the exposed wires, trying to force open a panel with a screwdriver, he manages to pry it open, but not before the screwdriver he used to pry it open snags a loose wire, breaking it. The wire wasn't for anything important, right? Probably not. Jonathan shrugged to himself as he went back to fiddle with the jumble of wiring and electronics in the drone. Well, that is until the drone he was working on started beeping. A red LED flashing from within, giving it an ominous glow. Huh. Well, uh, that's not normal. He barely had the time to slap one of the palms over his eyes before the drone exploded non-violently. Well, as non-violently as an explosion could be. Peeling his palm off of his face, he tentatively opens one of his eyes, only to be greeted by the sight of a newly made pile of scrap in front of him. That's unfortunate, he thought to himself, as he gave the broken drone a few experimental pokes with his screwdriver. He stared wide-eyed at the pile in front of him, mulling over the rapid, unintentional disassembly of a drone and how he could improve the patent-pending facemaker 5000 TM in the future. He nearly lost himself in his thoughts before one of his colleagues, Flob, waltzes through the door. Helen Jonathan, are you in here? One of the toilets in Block C is uh, broken. Whatever words were about to come out of Flob's mouth died in her throat. A chocked sound, resembling a muffled laugh escaping instead as Jonathan stared at her owlishly. The imprint of her hand where his eyes were 
acting as an island in the sea of black that his face was. Are you... <laughs> uh, busy right now? She said, mirth evident in her shaking voice, as she tried to not burst out into another fit of laughter. Not anymore. My poor baby decided to go rogue and self-destruct her. But that's in the past. He swiped an arm across his workbench, sending the remains of the drone to the floor. What do you need me for? Oh, um, uh, oh that, that's right. One of the uh, toilets is blocked and the plungers aren't working, so I thought maybe you could... She asked, pointing a tentacle outside. Oh, that, that's it. Um, uh, give, give me a second. Opening one of the drawers on his workbench, he pulled out a red sphere with a piece of string sticking out of it with a lighter before following her out. All right, lead me to it. So, um, human, what have you got in your hands? She said as they walked, uh, he gave her a non-committal shrug. Uh, the solution. Florb decided not to think too hard about Jonathan's ominous answer as she continued to lead him to their destination. It wasn't long after when they finally reached the bastardly toilet in question, the murky water in the bowl slightly too high to be normal. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, what in the fact did you guys do to this thing? Jonathan said, pinching his nose as he stared into the brown abyss. Truthfully, I don't really know. All I know is that I saw friend Kayala stumble out of here mumbling something about the Mexican food. Jonathan could only give her a solemn nod, giving the poor soul a quick prayer in his head. Poor bastard. He didn't deserve that. He did seem a bit pale. Hopefully they're okay now. They'll be feeling it for a while, unfortunately, he said, giving her a comforting pat on the back before he took the ball and lighter. Guess it's time to fix this. I really hope this is a good toilet bowl. Lighting the string on fire, he tossed the red ball into the water as he slammed the toilet lid down, sitting on top of it before quickly pulling Florp into his lap, eliciting an eep from her as he slammed his palms over her ears. What in the seven hells are you doing? Florp asked warily. Cherry bomb! Cherry what? She only received a devious grin as an answer to her question before a muffled crack of thunder flooded the bathroom. Jonathan letting out a whoop of joy as the lid rumbled beneath him. Florb, on the other hand, could only squeal in surprise as she and Jonathan became unwilling participants in an impromptu testing of Newton's third law. The force of the explosion forced the blockage clear, but not before also sending Florb and Jonathan flying a foot or so into the air, careening into the far end of the bathroom. They slammed right into the wall, both of them letting out a subdued oof as they slid down, quickly becoming acquainted with the cold tiding of the floor. Jonathan, being the human that he was, was the first on their fleet as he approached the toilet, the lid still somehow closed after that all had just happened. He opened the lid of the toilet, Flob only seeing him snort in laughter as a wisp of smoke left the toilet bowl. Curious, she scrambled onto her feet so that she could see the disaster that unfolded. Peeking over Jonathan's shoulder, she was the only met with the cleanest toilet bowl that she'd ever seen in her life. Apparently, whatever sorcery was in that red bowl had blasted the toy in it shiny and empty. The murky water, now nowhere to be seen. What the fuck? 
Jonathan could only laugh in amusement at Flob's reaction. Well, I'll be damned. This is a good toilet. Reaching over, he gave the toilet an experimental flush, a smile forming on his face as he saw fresh water refill the bowl. All fixed. Another day, another problem solved, he said triumphantly, giving the now slack-jawed Flob a pat on the back as he left the toilet. If you need something solved, you know where to find me. Even after he was long gone, she was still frozen in the spot. An owlish look painted on her face as she stared at the now sparkling toilet. What the fuck? End of story. Story number two. Barbarians. Written by British Tea Company. There's always this border area with the Morven Imperium. That's considered to be the worst place in the whole Imperium to be assigned to. The Fringe Zone, as named officially by mappers, and the Death Quadrant, as fondly nicknamed by anyone who passes in the area, was the arguably most dangerous sector of space. Even accounting for the contested zones between the Imperium's constant aggressive expansion and the attempts to reclaim territory for the Imperium regime. So, the Death Quadrant... Sounds like some super dangerous zone in space, probably proliferated by death clouds or spatial horrors, or maybe even cosmic hazards such as maelstroms or black holes. Well, the reason why the Morven think the fringe zone is a death sentence for anyone who wanders there is barbarians. Apparently, barbarians can cause the great Morven Empire to all shudder in collective fright, which is rather strange given the Imperium's insistence that everyone is a barbarian, and they are worthy master race. Now, while I don't want to justify their beliefs, the fact that they're the most powerful military force known in the galaxy does say one thing, and the fact that their technological advancement has progressed rapidly through the past centuries can say another. So this leads us back to the main question, what exactly is the fringe zone that's spooking the Morven people so much? Explorers have noted that space there is calm, a complete lack of anomalies, cosmic hazards, or deadly star-faring creatures. Bleak data from Morven scientists and astronauts indicate that the area of space over there has a lot of lush worlds, which by all rights should mean the Morven should be expanding in that direction, rather than this one. Well, the answer came just yesterday. The Morven Armada was stationed around a barren system on the lookout for barbarians when they detected gravitational anomalies at the edge of the system. Anyone who saw it had a good one second to look before an energy weapon with enough output to smite several dreadnoughts into ash and enough reach to accurately fire from a far end of the solar system tore apart several ships in rapid succession. The things that the Morven feared so greatly was a mammalian species, known as humans. Their new weapon, the Sun Lance, was a product of human madness, which even the Morven engineering thought impossible. The ability to tame a star and weaponize should boggle enough minds today. Now, uh, before anyone asks any more questions, we should actually be thankful to the Morven Imperium is bordering these humans. By God. They are barbarians in every sense. The word. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1701.
Swords to Plowshares, written by Hell's Kitchen Sick. I woke up to the smell of smoke. A figure stood over me, dark, slender, glowing red eyes, undifferentiated and vivid in the darkness of my apartment bedroom, stared at me. The figure was shaking slightly. Master, I... I burnt the eggs. I blinked a couple times. I stood up. Six million, four hundred fourteen thousand, six hundred and thirty-four. I shivered as I rested a hand on her shoulder. Her expression was still, cold, her stare a thousand yards away. She was shorter than me by nearly a foot, her body petite. It was meant to be. She was designed for infiltration and flexibility, for adaptation and for combat. I reached out and rested a hand on her short, bright white hair, and the shaking ceased. I want you to make you a special breakfast, to thank you for taking me in, but I let myself get distracted, and I, uh, burnt the eggs. I cleaned the pan, but there weren't any more eggs, and I softly squeezed her shoulder with my hand, and she went silent, her head lowered. It's okay. The thought is what counts. Let's make breakfast together, all right? I am supposed to do the job, she said, looking up at me, the red eyes shining fiercely. There were two things meant to mark her out as not human, the red eyes and the bright white hair. The rest of her was beguilingly, almost tauntingly human. She was meant to pass for human when needed. The hair died, the eyes covered, but she didn't need to infiltrate anywhere anymore. There might be a handful of people who'd grow uncomfortable around an android, but they were a frequent part of life in the city. They helped her, and sometimes they needed her. I smiled and softly pulled her close, hugging her. You're supposed to be enjoying retirement. It was a combination of two needs. There were jobs that required sapience, intelligence, and quickness of wit and thought that would be compared to a human. Combat was one of those jobs, particularly infiltration. These sapient constructs would, given time, become obsolete. Technology raced forward, and the tools and tactics they were trained in were rendered obsolete. They couldn't perform their jobs. If that were the only consideration, there might have been an unfortunate decision. They might have been discarded, destroyed, deleted, recycled when they were no longer useful for the task. But sapient things also fought harder, longer, better, when they had something to fight for. Being programmed for simple obedience wasn't a feasible solution for programs designed to advance and adapt. They had to have something worth fighting for. So, they were retired. When an android was obsolete, it was decommissioned, weaponry removed, and given to someone willing to take it in. They were still machines, still programmed to take pleasure in service. But it meant a life of being able to fulfill simple, easy commands, surrounded by humans who cared about them, with little to no risk of pain or destruction. It was a solution. I reached out and rested my hand on the delicate golden watch that was fused to her wrist, the mark of retirement. Some bureaucrat's idea of a joke. It suited her, though. It also told me that it was still a half an hour before sunrise. Come on, let's go make some sausages, okay? She nodded and looked out. I, uh, I do not need to eat. But you'd enjoy it, she nodded. 
Cool. We've got some oranges too, yeah? I stood by the griddle, letting the sausages sizzle and darken on that hot iron. There was still a small smoky scent to the air, and I opened a window, letting the city air pour in slowly. I slowly turned over one of the sausages, well, six million four hundred and four seven hundred and thirty-four round oranges, squeezing the orange juice out. She was still dressed in a flat black jumpsuit, which had been her standard military garb. It had only been yesterday I'd taken her in, after all. Most retired androids fit in easily. After four to eight years of combat, they had a decent understanding of humans. They were capable of any task necessary, and they were usually well-adjusted. They didn't feel pain or suffering, the way most humans did. They were safe to be around, and they were happy for the chance to live out the remainder of their operational existence, being surrounded by people. But then, there were the others, like her. I needed a better name for her. Do you like Greek myth? I asked, as I set the sausage onto the plate. I perused it on occasion. I am familiar with the Greek creation myths and the cultural background. What part were you thinking of? I'm just trying to think of a good name for you. I was thinking of Galatia. She paused for a moment. The strange choice, superficially apt. The connection between a human and a statue he created. Pygmalion. But the narrative breaks down. Pygmalion did not desire woman out of trauma. Well, Galatia was his own creation, flawless and perfect. I am substantially flawed. She looked down at her hands, and they shook slightly. Far from perfect. I smiled and gently ruffled her hair. She leaned her head into it, her eyes closing as the shaking stuffed. I was just thinking of the numbers on your serial code. It seemed kind of fitting. She was entirely still for a moment, then nodded. It's a pretty name. I would like you to call me that. I smiled. Excellent. We need to get you some new clothes today. She reached out with her fingers tangled in the sleeve of my shirt, squeezing me gently. Her eyes lowered to the ground as she carried the pitcher of orange juice and the plate of sausages back to the table. The military officer hadn't talked about what exactly had traumatized her. It was hard to imagine what could damage someone built to be so strong, to the point that she'd been on the slate for decommissioning, to the point where she'd requested that she be decommissioned. The officer had told me it was classified, and that the full details had been kept to her. She wasn't fit, really. She couldn't live out of retirement she'd earned normally. The trauma could cause personality quirks, odd behavior, extreme emotional reactions. Most people, given the choice, would simply prefer to take an android who wasn't going to be such a problem case. But the officer had been damned grateful that I'd volunteered to help her. Galatea sat next to me, just an inch or two away, so close she almost touched me, but not willing to take that last step. I rested an arm around her shoulder and pulled her against my side. She didn't resist, though she did stiffen slightly as her body pressed against mine. She was cool with a touch, but her body began to warm up, pressed against mine. Her breath let out in a slow, soft exhale. She didn't speak, but she seemed to be a bit more enthusiastic after that. You don't mind if I hold you, do you? I asked and smiled. She shook her head and leaned in a little bit closer, her eyes closed. I'd read a little bit about her operational history. Lots of classified work, lots of damage over the years, 
She'd been badly damaged more than a few times, but now, none of that showed on her, none of the scars. She took a deep breath, and leaned harder against me, placing her full weight at my side. I grunted involuntarily, and she began to straighten up before I pulled her back, giving her a gentle squeeze. She slowly lifted her arms up and began to hug me back. There was a desperation in the touch. She didn't squeeze hard, but the way she pressed to my side, burying her face in my shoulder, it spoke of someone terrified that she'd be pulled away at any second. I let her hold me like that for several long seconds. Eventually, her grip loosened, and she looked down at my plate, her face still cold. I'm sorry. I'm distracting you. Your food is getting cold. I'm not going to starve because you want a hug, I said, and then softly stroked her head again. She leaned into it for a moment, her eyes closed again, and began to eat her own food. When she finished, I carried the dishes to the sink and began to scrub them. She stood by her washing rack, and as each dish was handed to her, she began to wipe and clean with a cloth, setting it to dry in the rack. I was thinking that we could go to the mall later today, get you some new clothes, get you out of that jumpsuit. I handed her one of the glasses. She stared at it, carefully wiping it, taking great care. I was thinking that we could get some lunch there too. They've got this great orange ch- There was a crash and a small spray of glass shrapnel. Galatia had gone stiff as a rock. Her hand clenched into a fist around the remnants of the glass. Her expression unfroze after barely a second, and she stared down at her fingers, blood trickling down her arm as I gently tugged her hand out. I'm... I'm sorry, Master. I... I broke. It's okay. Let's just get your hand fixed. I lead her to the bathroom, taking a pair of tweezers. She didn't feel pain from the gentle removing of the glass, the flesh already seeding up behind it, the synthetic mixture tougher, faster to repair than any human skin. Then she looked aside and saw a small cut across my arm, where one of the pieces of glass had scored me. I... Hardly a scratch, I said softly, stroking her head. It was an accident, and I'm not harmed. We all have accidents. She was very quiet as I finished removing the glass and added a little back teen to the cut on my own arm, covering it up with my shirt. The mall was an interesting experience for her. The bright glow of neon and the LCD screens filled the air, the rain hammering home against the glass ceiling, dark clouds filling the air above the city. She stayed very close to me, her eyes flicking from one monitor to another. You all right? I asked, my voice soft. We don't have to do this today, if you're not ready. No, it's not that. She reached out, her fingers tangling my sleeve, frowning. I'm just trying to make sure that you are safe. There are many people here. If they wished, they could harm you. I, uh... She shook her head and lowered her eyes. I... I'm behaving like a weapon. It's safe, I said and smiled. I won't deny that someone could pull something, but they're not going to. Come on. Let's find a nice clothing store. She continued walking alongside me as we passed the shops. I was nearly pulled off my feet when she suddenly stopped, staring into the glass storefront. I raised an eyebrow. Are you sure? I gave an eye to the leather corset sitting in the window next to the cat ear's headband, a latex zentai, and a half a dozen other unusual items. She nodded quickly. 
All right, if you want. No, you wait here. I'll be quick. I do not want you to see what I buy. She lowered her head. Is that all right? I, I can pay for it all myself. Uh, my pension is substantial. Uh, of course, I smiled and watched as she dashed into the store. She returned less than two minutes later, clutching a large brown bag to her chest. Her head lowered. Find everything you wanted, I asked, and she nodded, her eyes on the ground. The clothing outlet was a calmer experience as the two of us shopped. She still favored the monochrome and exclusively chose cheap clothing, a set of black leggings and a handful of black shirts, things without much ornamentation. I paused for a moment as we went through another aisle, and she pointed out a set of black sneakers. You sure you don't want something more colorful? You don't have to go monochrome. It's, uh, um, uh, maybe next time, she said, still squeezing the paper bag to her chest. She looked away, and I grabbed a black ribbon from the wall as she did. I stepped behind her and stroked her hair for a moment before carefully tying it into a bow in her hair. She stiffened, but didn't fight for the movement. When I had finished, she turned, staring at a nearby mirror, and examined the ribbon, reaching her hand up to touch it gently. I, I, sure, this is, uh... She looked at the wall and flinched slightly at the price. It wasn't ruinously expensive, but a natural silk ribbon was still pricey, even at a place like this. Are, uh, are you sure? I, I don't wish for you to go through any hardship. It's okay. You're worth it, I smiled, and stroked her head behind the ribbon. I paid for the clothing for her, and though she protested, I insisted. The two of us went straight home instead of stopping for food. I wasn't sure what had triggered her flashback in the kitchen, but it was part of the learning about her. When we returned home, I was soaked to the bone by the rain and smiled. I'm going to go take a hot shower. After that, we can make lunch together. Is there anything you would like? She was quiet for a moment and looked down at the brown paper bag. She clutched it to her chest as we'd walked, keeping it dry. Uh, uh, nothing special. She murmured softly. I nodded and rubbed her hair, the rain already dripping out of it quickly, leaving it dry and smooth. I'd been standing in the hot shower for five minutes when I heard the door creak open. The shadow of Galatea's figure appeared against the shower curtain. I turned off the water and pulled it aside slightly. Ah, are you all right, Gala? The dress was attractive, gorgeous even. Black silks hung down her sides, cinched tight around her waist exposing her pale shoulders and her arms. Gloves that started at the elbows ended at her knuckles, leaving the tips of her fingers bare. The tight black stockings around her legs gently bit into her thighs, outlining the shape. A few inches of pale skin were left visible between the bottom of the skirt and the top of the stockings. As she stood there, she was frozen still. What's this about, Galatea? I asked softly. She took a step closer. I want to be desirable. I'm not useful. I'm... I'm broken. I... I could not keep doing my job. I cannot be a good support for you. I'm a... a useless tool. She stared down at her hands and then withdrew a step. I'm sorry. I've been impertinent. I have been... selfish. She shook her head. You are going to a great distance to simply provide me with second chance. And I cannot. I... I thought... Uh, I could be attractive. I could provide companionship, but if I were not careful, I, I would hurt you. I could. Her eyes flicked to my arm 
and the angry red mark where the cut had scabbed over. Give me a second to put pants on, would you? She paused for a moment. I'm just a machine master. You do not have to be bashful around me. I do not, uh, matter. You do matter to me, I smiled. Give me a moment's privacy, okay? And for a fraction of a moment, a smile crossed her face. Then she straightened and stepped out of the bathroom. A few moments later, I sat in the kitchen with her and took a moment to admire her. She really did look very good in the dress, the ribbon setting her in her hair providing a contrast. Do you mind if I look? I like it, she said, looking down. I like the feeling as though I am desirable, as though a human would want me. It makes me feel like I have some value. You've got a lot more value than that. You've done some amazing things. I've read about them. She was quiet for a moment. Is this about what happened? I killed a human, she said. I paused at this, slightly stunned. It was necessary. It was a consequence on a permission, and uh, I was cleared of any wrongdoing, but uh, during the extraction, my memory unit was damaged. I lost memory of it. I cannot remember why I killed him. Why I had to. Who he was. She stared down at her hands. I think of it sometimes. Create scenarios. Imagine what I did. Why I did it. But I could kill a human. I know that in my heart. I am faulty. Broken. I should have been decommissioned. But you are offering to help me. To fix me. She looked up. What if I can't be fixed? What if I am broken like this forever? That's okay, I said. Then do you want me like this? Do you like me helpless, dependent on you? Do you want someone who'll simply be broken forever? Her tone was not harsh or accusatory. She was just curious. I shrugged. I'll care about you, whether or not you are fixed. Why? There was a small silence in the room as she moved a hand over her mouth and her red eyes downcast. Because you worked hard and you sacrificed yourself. You deserve to be taken care of. I reached out and stroked her hair. She leaned into the hand and then stood up, sitting down next to me, her head pressed against my shoulder. What if I hurt you? People hurt each other, especially when they care. She was quiet for another moment. If I stop uh, being broken, will I have to leave you? No, definitely not. And you won't have to leave me even if you don't feel like you're fixed. We'll just take things one day at a time. All right, she nodded. Can, can I sleep in your room tonight? I paused for a moment and tried with all my might not to admire the cleavage that the dress was showing. Off, as she leaned into my side. Um, sh sh sure. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1702. Terran Recreation. Written by Average Cake Enjoyer. When Scythene had accepted her dear friend Ishikawa's invitation for some human recreation, she readily jumped at his offer. How couldn't she? Everybody needed a hobby to enjoy, and for her, experiencing other species' cultures was a guilty pleasure. It was just so interesting. Not that she'd just gush about it out loud, though. She had a reputation as a Federation captain to protect, but seeing as she was off the clock... A little indulgence now and then never hurt anyone. And it's not like anything could go wrong. The reputations humans had for being thrill-seeking lunatics must have been blood out of proportion, right? 
Just because they're a little unhinged when it comes to everything else doesn't mean that they can't enjoy their off time doing something peaceful. Or so she hoped. As they pulled up to their destination, a feeling of trepidation crept up to her back as she noted that they arrived at an airport. How strange. She reached over and tapped her friend on the shoulder. Friend Isakawa, why, why, why are we here? Oh, uh, you know, we're just here for the flight. We get on, we get off, and we enjoy the view. He said with a smile. A smile that she'd seen on other humans when they were up to no good. Pushing away the ever-approaching feeling of foreboding, she opted to believe that they were only going to take a short flight to a nice, scenic destination. Oh, okay, uh, that sounds interesting. That's the spirit. Having found a spot, Ishikawa parked the car. Now let's go. Time waits for no one. Sighting sweat dropped. She tugged at the harness, tightening a few straps as she waited for Ishikawa to finish putting his own harness on. Finding nothing else to do while waiting, she pondered as to why she had to wear the harness for a quick flight and why she had to sign a uh, concerning amount of paperwork. Something's not adding up here. Before she could have any second thoughts, a pat on her shoulder pulled her out of her own thoughts. Turning around, she saw Isakawa in his own hearts, a weird-looking backpack on his hands. Ishikawa looked her up and down. Looking good. Looks like you know how to put on a harness. I am your superior and a Federation captain. Of course I'd know how to put on a harness, she said, scoffing. I don't command a trillion credit vessel for nothing, you know. That's right. You signed my paychecks, he said with a click of his tongue. How about me? Harness looking good? After giving Ishikawa a quick once-over, she gave him an approving nod. So, friend Ishikawa, why are we wearing harnesses for a flight like this? And what's with the bag that you have? The harnesses are for our safety, and this... He gave the bag a little wiggle before leaning closer and whispering conspiratorially. This is a surprise tool that'll help us later. Scythine squinted at him, trying to find any sign of deception in his face. After finding none, she let out a deep sigh. She really hoped the view he promised would be worth it. Oh, but if it wasn't, and this whole thing was a disappointment, but she didn't want to be disrespectful. Hello, uh, done thinking, he said, waving a hand over her eyes. Ishikawa to Scythine. Please respond. Huh? Oh, right, um, 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 we should get going. She said as she walked away, still in a bit of a daze. That's my line. He pointed in the complete opposite direction of where she was going. And the hangar's over that way. She flushed a deep lilac. Oh, oh, uh, uh, lead the way. As Scythine entered the plane, a barrage of questions flooded her mind, such as, why was there a concerning lack of seats? Why were there people outside checking our harnesses? Was this really just a normal flight? What was in Ishikawa's bag? Why are we the only ones here? She shook her head, willing away any intruding thoughts, chalking it up to human eccentricity, as she sat in front of sitting Ishikawa. Are you having second thoughts? He asked. We can get off now if you like. No, it's just uh, that this all seems, uh, off. She replied hesitantly. I trust you, though. Uh, wrong answer. He mumbled under a cough. Huh? Uh, what was that? I said... Take this and scooch a bit closer so that I can hook you up. He waved a pair of goggles and some earplugs in front of him. 
It's for your, uh, uh, safety? After taking the things he offered, she moved to Sukkosu, putting on the goggles and earplugs as Ishikawa fiddled with the buckles on his harness as he latched her to himself. Just as they finished preparations, they felt the plane rumble beneath them as the droning of the engines filled the cabin. Uh, it, it looks like they were finally getting out of here. Ishikawa clapped his hands and rubbed them together with glee. Can't wait! She eyed Ishikawa with suspicion, raising herself as she felt the aircraft lurch upwards as it took off. Sure, I don't regret this. She was definitely regretting this. Saitin really didn't know what was going to happen, but her fight or flight instincts were on full tilt. Her brain was working overtime, trying to figure out what was going on. The lack of seats, Ishikawa being far too excited for a flight, the harness. I swear I saw something about release of liability on one of those waivers. Things just weren't adding up and she really wasn't liking it. She tapped Ishikawa's leg, getting his attention. Friend, uh, Ishikawa, hmm? When do we get off? She asked, feeling a bit antsy to the touch solid ground. Soon, a wave of relief washed over. Oh, good. How soon? A loud ding cut through the droning of the entrance and a green light popping up on the opposite end of the cabin. Before she could question what was happening, the door beside her slid open and a strong gust of wind crashing into them. That soon, her skin cycled through a rainbow colors as she panicked. Close the door, huh? What did you say? He asked, inching his way over to the open door, quickly finding himself sitting on the edge. Couldn't quite catch that. Ishikawa, stop moving, she squealed, covering her eyes with her tentacles as she thrashed in her harness. I, I want to get off this plane, please. Get off the plane, that can be arranged. Just look at me for a second. Reluctantly doing so, she opened her eyes to him, looking back at her with a maniacal smile. Better keep your eyes open. You really wouldn't want to miss this. What? She couldn't even finish her sentence before Ishikawa flung himself, and consequently her, out of the plane. Saitin could only open her mouth in a silent scream as her brain completely blanked, having been overwhelmed by the situation. The last thing she heard before passing out was the joyful whoop of her friend. The muted sounds of rushing wind was the first thing that she could register. Her mind still fuzzy as it rebooted itself. That was a weird dream. Prying her eyes open, she was greeted with the sight of the ground slowly inching its way towards her. She stared ahead blankly before she realized what was happening. Not a dream, not a dream. Hey, Carpenter, nice that you finally can join me, Ishikawa said from behind her. How'd you enjoy the catnap? We're going to die. Oh my God, we're going to die. Her skin started to cycle through all of the colors of the rainbow. As she freaked out, not like this, not like this. We're not going to die. Calm down, enjoy the ride, he said calmly, as if we weren't hurtling towards the ground. In a way, he was right. The view was amazing. The azure hue of the sky complementing the various shades of green beneath them, combined with the serene feeling of the wind rushing up past her. Oh, wait, she was falling fast, back to screaming, I guess. Ah! The ground was getting closer. Saitin, now able to pick out individual buildings in the distance. This is it. This is how I die. Ishikawa chuckled at a panic. Hey, at least it'll be quick, right? You, you, you demon, she screamed, bleeding in her harness. You no good heathen. I'll, I'll have your head. Whoa, whoa, calm down. Quit squirming. Or we're actually going to die. 
she slammed her eyes closed and made a silent prayer to her deities as the ground sped ever closer to her, preparing for the inevitable. That was until she felt herself get violently jerked backwards, the sounds of wind disappearing in an instant. So, this is it. I died. Maybe I'll finally meet my brood mother in heaven. So long, world. A distant voice called out to her. Hey, uh, are you okay? Wake up. Is that Ishikawa? This isn't heaven. So, what sense did I commit to deserve this cruel and unusual punishment? I can hear you mumbling. It's not Hal and you're not dead. Open your eyes. That's strange. Even in death, Ishikawa finds a way to haunt me. Oh, you little. Bidding herself get shaken, she snapped her eyes open. Instead of fire and brimstone that she was expecting, she was met with a lush landscape as far as the eye could see. The blue sky sitting on top of it. Hearing of the fluttering of material, she looked up to see the colorful spread of cloth billowing above her. Ah, where did that come from? The secret tool for later, that's where. That voice behind us said, you finally back in the land of living again. Oh, there was just Ishikawa. Did I say that out loud? You've been mumbling to yourself ever since you thought you died, he confirmed. Ah. Other than you coming back from the dead, how would you enjoy your first time skydiving? The gold glare Scythine gave him sent a shiver down his back. I'm docking your pay for this. Ah, oh, man, he sighed to himself. I still do it again, though. You chaos scrum... Or oh, whatever. Just take me somewhere safer next time. Next time, huh? He asked with a raised eyebrow. Ever heard of, um, bungee jumping? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1703 Humans and Ethanol, written by Wanny91 To us, said the bipedal creature, who was sitting on the opposite side of my table, with a solemnly voice, and raised the glass which it held in one of his two claw-like hands in my direction. Surprised by the sudden gesture of friendliness which came out of nowhere, I needed a moment before I could grab my glass so that I could imitate the strange and to me unknown gesture of the human. As it quickly turned out, my decision to copy the human's gesture had been the right thing, because as soon as I had raised my glass into the air, the human opened his mouth sideways and showed me a set of white and dangerously sharp-looking teeth. And it was only thanks to my universal translator and the fact that I had seen this gesture before that I knew that this menacing-looking gesture was in fact an expression of happiness and not a threat against my person. But still smiling as the spatial expression was called in his language, the human nodded appreciatively for my thoughtfulness with his head in my direction before finally lowering his hand again so he was able to press the opening of the glass firmly to his lips. And without waiting for me to do the same, the human proceeded to gulp the greenish liquid inside of the glass down his throat in one single, continuous move of his head backwards instead of taking one sip at a time. I could only guess at this point that it was the high percentage of ethanol inside his drink which let the human immediately twist his mouth in disgust when the bitter flavor of the ethanol overwhelmed his sense of taste as soon as the liquid had reached his stomach. But before I had the chance to ask him if he was okay, the human suddenly slammed down his empty glass on the table, lowered his head, and let out a loud bah! before starting to shake his head violently from one side to the other, like he wanted to get rid of the bitter taste in his mouth in that kind of way. 
Interestingly enough, this fierce head shaking actually seemed to aid the human in overcoming the numbing after effects of the ethanol in record time, because not only did the human stop the head shaking a few moments later again, but he also lifted up his head and looked me straight into my eyes like nothing had just happened. And instead of showing regret, the human showed me his predatory smile again before asking, Another one? While pointing with one of his five fingers, he possessed in each hand at the almost empty glass in front of me. Since I was still frozen in astonishment about this vast metabolism, I needed a moment before I could recover and answer him. I, uh, honestly don't know. But instead of accepting my answer, the smile on the human's face only grew wider. Come on, he said, taunting me. We have finally finished our project in which we had worked for over the past year. So let us celebrate this occasion in an appropriate kind of way. When I heard the human saying that, I couldn't resist to ask him in a reproachful tone. Does celebrating mean to poison oneself with ethanol until we black out? I asked him. And before the human could answer my subtle allegations, I took a quick glance at the five empty glasses which stood in front of him, before saying in a more respectful tone, Look, Robert, I admit that I don't know much about your species yet, but I'm fairly sure that no living being should drink that amount of ethanol, like you have, unless they plan to kill themselves. And you, my friend, already had a lot, so I don't think any more drinks are good for you. But instead of accepting my concerns, my co-worker, called Robert, waved with his hand horizontally in the air like he wanted to wipe the concerns away with that gesture. Look, Gregor, he said with a completely different tone in his voice than before. Alcohol, or as an old base drinks like you would call them, are essential for us humans. Everyone to celebrate something. Now, of course, you are right with your assumption that too much ethanol can be dangerous, even for someone of my species. But believe me when I say that most humans know their limit of how much ethanol they can handle before they have to throw up. And I'm still far away from that point. Are you sure? I asked my friend, not fully convinced yet. That was why I inquired. How can you know your tolerance for this kind of poison if too much can kill you? And Robert could only give me his answer, I explained myself. I only ask because I have heard that it isn't allowed for a human to drink ethanol-based drinks if they aren't considered to be an adult by law yet. And this isn't until one of your kind is over 18 cycles old. So there is no time yet to learn your limit without overdosing and thus killing yourself, especially if you are only 24 cycles old, like you have told me. Well... Robert started to explain. Technically, you are right when you say that it is forbidden for a human to drink alcohol if they are still underage. But this law honestly never has stopped us from drinking, even though we weren't grown-ups yet, he said while smiling mischievously. His words stopped me in the middle of moving my glass down from my mouth. Wait a minute, I slowly said, while I put the glass back on the table. Do you honestly want to tell me that your younglings ignore this law and drink this kind of poison even though it can kill them? Robert nodded with his head. With his head. The flesh around my mouth moved back in shock, and gobsmacked if I asked him, How in the name of Ulthuct can your elders allow you to do something like that? Don't they try to stop you? My question let Robert laugh. <laughs> I can't answer for others, but in my case, it was actually my father who gave me my first drink. He said a few moments later, still chuckling. Your elder did what? I said louder than I wanted to at that was why I lowered my voice when I asked Robert, shocked. How could your elder do that if the slightest bit of ethanol is enough to kill a youngling? Robert stopped smiling, and one of his eyebrows moved up. Why would a sip of alcohol kill a child? 
He asked me, confused, instead of answering my question. It isn't like our bodies can't handle one sip. He then said, Now I was confused. Do you seriously want to tell me that the bodies of your younglings can handle ethanol? How is this even possible without having the help of an implant? Robert scratched his head. How do I say this? He said more to himself than to me before starting. I know that this may sound strange to you, but we humans have an organ which just job is to clean our blood, and in the process it removes everything poisonous from our body. I was impressed. That really is interesting. I said, and was quiet for a moment, so Robert used the chance to ask a question himself. Based on your comment, I suspect that your species don't have such an organ. Am I right? As an answer, I slowly moved my head in a circular motion, which had the same meaning as the human gesture, where they shook their head to deny something. No, we don't have such an organ, I confirmed Robert's suspicion. And why should we? Back on our home planet, there wasn't anything which was poisonous for us, so we never had to deal with poison. But if you don't mind me asking, how did your species have the idea to create the implant if there wasn't anything on your home planet which was toxic to you? Robert inquired. His question let my ears vibrate in amusement. My race isn't stupid, Robert. I answered him over the humming in my ears. It is only logical that my race sooner or later stumbled over something toxic in the universe. And when we found out how vulnerable our bodies were, we created the implants in order to protect ourselves. So why don't you give your younglings an implant if any toxin can kill them? Robert asked, puzzled. I moved one of my arms over my head. That is quite hard to explain to an outsider, I said evasive. But our younglings grow up on our home planet until they have reached a certain level of self-awareness. And since ethanol is not only highly addictive for us, but also numbs our nervous systems like it does with yours, we believe that it hinders them to reach this level and thus hinder them in reaching adulthood. So until they aren't ready yet, they simply won't get an implant. Sounds harsh, but effective, Robert commented, and moved his hand through his hair around his mouth, which only had grown in the last few months. It sounds harsh, yes, I agreed, but by doing that we make sure that they won't get tempted by something that can kill them. True that, Robert agreed, and since he didn't ask another question, I used the chance to ask him another. So instead of an implant like we have, your species has an organ which protects you from the toxins? Robert nodded. That is more or less right, he confirmed, but the liver is an organ is called isn't capable of protecting us against every kind of poison we ingest. When we are born, as for example, our liver is still weak, and the slightest amount of poison can kill us since the liver can't handle it yet. Therefore, the law banning alcohol for underage humans since their liver can't handle the ethanol yet. What do you mean by yet? Do you want to imply that this liver of yours gets stronger over time? I asked, confused. Not over time, no, Robert denied. More like our liver grows stronger, the more poison we ingest. I didn't quite understand that. That was why I asked, care to explain? Robert sighed. Take ethanol as an example. I had my first sip of alcohol when I was 14 years old. At first, I didn't like the taste of beer at all, and I got sick just by drinking one sip. But over the course of the next two years, I was able to drink more and more sips until I could drink two beers without any problem. And what happens if you drink too much? Robert scratched his head. It depends on the amount you take. If you are below a certain level, we only wake up the next day with a nasty headache, since the ethanol takes away the water in our body, which leaves us with a so-called hangover. But if we drink more than that, we will throw up since our body wants to get rid of the excessive alcohol in our body. Only if we then choose to drink more alcohol, 
It can get dangerous for us if we don't get treated at a hospital. So ethanol is only dangerous for you if you choose to ignore all the warnings and don't get treated at a hospital, I repeated his last words as a question. Robert nodded slowly, but then suddenly clapped his hands together. But enough of what happens if we have too much, he said enthusiastically, and pointed again at the empty glass in front of him. So do you take another round or not? Surprised by his sudden change of topic, I looked down at the empty glass in my hand before I asked myself the very same question. And more important, if my implant could handle another round. Fine, I said a few moments later, reluctantly, and sighed heavily. Let us order another round, I added, even though I cursed myself on the inside, ready for agreeing. I knew that the consequences of another round would be a terrible headache the next morning, since the implant used this pain to show me how much more toxin it could handle, and the more I would have in my body, the worse the headache would get. When I looked up from the glass again, it didn't surprise me to see Robert smiling again. That is good to hear, my friend, he said, obviously happy, before begging me, but please let us order some drink from my planet this time. Why? I asked him curiously. Robert sighed. Because then you will be able to drink a real drink for once, and not something weak like the previous beverage we had. I couldn't help myself for feeling a bit offended by his words. What do you mean by weak drink? I asked him provokingly. That green liquid had so much ethanol inside it that your body instantly reacted to it, so you can't tell me that it was too weak. Are you referring to my head shaking in tears? Robert asked, surprised only to add innocently. That wasn't because of the amount of ethanol in the drink. I leaned forward in my stool. You seriously want to tell me that that violent head shaking, the tensing of your muscles, and the transplant fluid in your eyes after you had swallowed down the drink in one gulp wasn't because there was too much ethanol inside of it? I asked, obviously not believing him. But Robert nodded his head. That is correct, yes, he said. That head shaking was to get rid of the weird aftertaste since uh, the liquid tasted like foul meat. But beside that, I, I barely could taste the ethanol inside of the drink. That is why I poured my glass so full and swallowed in one motion. Really? I asked, still not believing him. But since I knew that it was pointless to argue with Robert about that topic, I gave in. Fine. If you are so convinced, then let us order some beverage from your planet. But please order something which doesn't have too much ethanol in it, okay? I don't want to end up totally wasted. Robert smiled and nodded, eagerly, before turning around on his stool so that he could search for the drink maker of this place. I, in the meantime, used this chance to sort out my thoughts, because even though Robert's species had joined the Galactic Republic quite a while ago, I hadn't had the time yet to learn more about his species. So the fact that Robert supposedly hadn't felt any ethanol in our previous drink somehow worried me a bit, since the green liquid was supposed to be one of the strongest drinks in this bar. But if Robert was telling the truth about this organ called the liver, it would certainly explain some of the rumors and warnings I'd heard about the humans. And it would also explain how Roberts was able to drink so much ethanol without showing any side effects. But while I was still lost in my thoughts, I suddenly could hear Robert asking someone, Do you have any kind of beverage from the Terrans? Referring to the official name of his species. Confused to whom Robert was talking to, I lifted my head only to see him facing a tall, greyish-looking alien who had quietly arrived on our table without me noticing. I think we have some beverages from the human race. I could hear the drink maker of the bar saying to Robert in his high voice, but you would have to pour your drinks yourselves since we don't know how much human ethanol is enough to make this strong drink. Robert smiled. That isn't a problem at all. 
he said happy and failed to notice that the drink maker made a step backwards as soon as he saw the predatory smile of Robert. But not a second later, it seemed like the Universal Translator kicked in and told the drink maker that the smile of Robert was a gesture of friendliness and not a threat against him, what it would have usually meant if it had come from any other omni or carnivorous species. That was why the greyish alien relaxed again as soon as he had heard the translation of his translator. Curiously, I looked from the drink maker to Robert, who didn't seem to have noticed that the drink maker had made a step backwards because he didn't show any sign of concern. Instead, Robert asked the drink maker, Before you go, can I also ask you if you have Coca-Cola in this bar? Unlike me, it seemed like the drink maker had heard the word Coca-Cola before, because he asked Robert to clarify, Isn't Coca-Cola that dark, sweet liquid from your race with a lot of sugar in it? Yep, that's it, Robert confirmed with his predatory smile before asking, So that means you have some? The drink maker nodded slowly and said, I would have to look in our basement, but I think we still have some bottles left. If we have some, I will bring you one bottle. That would be very kind of you, Robert said, and then turned in my direction again since the conversation with the drink maker was clearly finished. Cola? I simply asked Robert after we faced each other again. It is a soft drink from my planet. When I was younger, we often used it to mix it with other alcohol, so our drinks would taste better, Robert answered my question. And what is inside of this soft drink? I wanted to know. But instead of telling me, Robert raised his hand facing upwards to his shoulder, which, according to my translator, was a gesture to show that he didn't know something. I honestly don't know, Robert added to his gesture a second later. But since our two races apparently have similar taste, I think you'll like it. We'll see, I simply said, since I wasn't that sure about it. And we both fell into silence. Luckily for us, we didn't have long to wait until the drink maker returned to our table with a total of six different bottles in each of his hands. I wasn't sure which Terran alcohol you would like. That is why I brought you every bottle we have from Earth, he said, while placing one bottle after another in front of Robert, until one bottle was left. And here is your requested Coca-Cola, the drink maker said, while placing the last bottle on the table. And, by the way, the drink maker continued, I have checked the label on this bottle, and my boss told me to tell you that if you don't finish the bottle here, can you take it home, since most of our clients probably won't drink something like that, which is so highly addictive. The drink maker's last words gave me a worried look, while Robert looked happy. Thank you very much for that, he thanked the drink maker, before turning his attention to the bottles. Slowly, he took each bottle into his hands and inspected the label before he took the bottle cap and looked inside of the bottle. This procedure repeated itself for every bottle until Robert had inspected every single bottle except one with a Coca-Cola inside. We'll take this one, Robert said, after he had put the last bottle on the table again, only to take another bottle in his hands so that he could show it to the drink maker. Very well, the drink maker said, and made a little bow. Then I will take the other ones back. With his word, the drinker took the other four bottles in his hands again before walking back behind the bar counter so that he was able to store the bottles behind the locked cabinet again. With a slightly worried look on my face, I turned my attention from the locked cabinet back to Robert, who in the meantime was busy opening a bottle, which looked like it was made out of molten sand. After he had opened the bottle, Robert carefully filled the two fresh glasses, which the drink maker had also brought 
to about half full before closing the bottle again. And while Robert reached out for the red-colored bottle made from plastic, I stretched one of my arms so that I was able to grab the clear glass bottle with one of my suckers on my hand. What does Jack Daniels and Tennessee whiskey mean? I asked Robert as soon as I had finished reading the black label on the bottle. Robert looked up from pouring the drinks and followed my gaze to the bottle. Ah, you mean the bottle, he said, smiling. Well, Jack Daniels is the name of the alcohol, and Tennessee whiskey describes what type it is. You have different ethanol-based drinks? I asked Robert, surprised. Yeah, yes, we have, Robert answered, while finishing the second glass by pouring Coca-Cola in it. We have, as an example, beer, which is made from the fermentation of starches. Then we have wine, which is made from the fermentation of grapes and other fruits. And then we have harder liquor, which is made by distilling different mixtures of alcoholic fermentation. And how many different ethanol-based drinks are there? I almost didn't dare to ask. Robert moved his shoulder up again without looking up. I don't know. Thousands, maybe? Thousands? I said in disbelief. Or more, Robert added and finished the second drink. And what does this symbol on these numbers mean? I asked while Robert was closing the Coca-Cola bottle, which wasn't even half empty yet. You mean the percentage symbol? Robert asked to clarify while handing me one of the two glasses. I'm surprised that your translator hasn't translated it, but the symbol shows the percentage of ethanol inside the bottle. Here, it says the bottle contains 40% alcohol. Wait, what? I asked hardly. Did you just say 40%? Robert nodded. Why? Is that a problem? He asked me, concerned. I shook my head. Not for me, no. But a percentage over 20% in a liquid is enough to kill almost everyone else. Did you know that? Robert's eyes grew wide, which indirectly told me his answer. No, I didn't know that. He answered, obviously surprised. But can you drink it? I nodded. Barely, yes. And only because my species has the implant. But if the percentage would be over 50%, it would be deadly for me too. Luckily for me, you didn't mix this drink with some kind of psychoactive drug. Otherwise, I would die on the spot. As soon as I ended my sentence, Robert looked several seconds with wide eyes at me before he leapt so fast over the table that my eyes couldn't follow him. Before I could even react, Robert already had smacked the drink which had mixed out of my hand. What the feck, Robert? I yelled, surprised at Robert, and stood up. But the only thing Robert did was sit calmly down and he stood again. So I asked him with a quieter voice, Why did you do that? Robert took a sip from his drink before saying in a calm voice, uh, believe me, you'll thank me in a minute. I folded my tentacles around my body to show him that I wasn't happy with him. And why should I? I asked him challengingly. Robert took another sip. Well, he started. Maybe because that Coca-Cola is from my planet contains caffeine. I stared in disbelief at Robert. What? I asked to clarify, even though I'd heard him correctly. You seriously want to tell me that you mix your ethanol-based drinks with some other psychoactive drug? Is your species crazy? To my surprise, Robert smiled. If you think that's crazy, he said, then you should see what we do back on Earth. There we have alcohol, well over 80% alcohol, and we sometimes mix it with liquids, who have as much caffeine inside of them as Coca-Cola. Seriously, Robert? I was finally able to say, after staring at Robert in disbelief for several minutes. You humans have a serious addiction problem. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1704 Story number one Exchangeable Parts Written by Zentaps Many stories exist of humans who are somehow able to invent their way out of impossible scenarios. 
ships repaired from catastrophic damages, prisoners engineering an escape vehicle from spare parts, soldiers who jerry-rig equipment in the field to win battles, even just that random human down the street who can repair junk into working equipment. What gets lost in the retellings is one fact about human technology, standardization of exchangeable parts, the concept of parts being identical and interchangeable. This concept is reflected in the construction of their devices. The same tube that connects a water pipeline to a reactor core might very well be the same size as the one that feeds into the washing machine. A damaged heating coil in a spacesuit might have a close cousin in the electric kettle. What follows are some vignettes that exemplify the utility that standardization grants. When a blackout cut the power to the city hospital, there was a crisis almost immediately. Dozens of patients were at risk if power couldn't be restored soon. The backup generators failed almost immediately. A bad wiring sparked a fire that was quickly put out before things went terribly wrong. In a bid that was both brilliant and desperate, the hospital staff enlisted near everyone they could to plug the generators for their vehicle into the hospital grid. Cables stretched across the parking lot and through from the front door and coils snaked through the ground floor windows and pooling beside the hospital's power substation. On the roof, the hospital's three rescue vehicles idle, pumping power. It was just enough to sustain the bare necessities. When power was restored, the hospital declared that no casualties had been sustained, which was met with cheers. When the military depot on Corrigar 4 was suddenly under threat of invasion from the Drell, it found itself short of fighter craft. Many of the defensive craft damaged in the initial attacks. In an unusual move, the decision was made to strip the land vehicles for parts to repair wounded planes. Holes patched with deck plating, shield generators from tank refits for a fighter craft housing. As a result, Corrigal was able to field an impressive air defense, which bravely fought off the invasion fleet. However, early ground invasion elements had already landed and were moving to destroy key military positions. In one of the fastest turnarounds, the fighter craft were landed, stripped of their parts to restore the plundered land vehicles, which then raced off to intercept the enemy force. It was an astounding feat, one which saw crews crawling over still-melting armor plates to pick out components to facilitate repairs. When the passenger liner Molten Streamer's reactor suffered a core breach, it was lucky enough to be in the range of a nearby planet. Though the planet was unoccupied, it did have an old marine base from the fortress walls orbiting around it. Engineers from the Molten Streamer made a quick shuttle trip to the salvage materials and parts that they could from the old relic. Standards back then had largely remained in place, and the engineers were after some time able to identify similar parts in the housing of the powered-down base reactor. Though, to the irritation of the engineers, the power cables had a lower max power specification than their own. In the end, the Molten Streamer's crew were not only able to repair the damage to the ship, but also fix a long-broken coffee machine. End of story. Story number two. Tit for Tat, written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. Terry was getting tired of everyone's crap. She couldn't go a day without someone messing with her food or drink. They tried to tamper with the climate control of her quarters, but she locked that down fast. Terry 
could understand if the skullduggery and shenanigans were a product of her own machinations or her people's. But it wasn't. For whatever reason, that made it all the more frustrating to her. At least they were learning. She wasn't allowed exposed flame, but they didn't try to feed her methanol anymore, either. Totally worth it. Now they checked relevant medical data before trying to sneak things into her consumables. They weren't the sharpest tools in the shed when it came to covering their digital tracks, either. At first, Terry thought that she'd have to design and implement an algorithm to feed the medical intelligence, but it wasn't necessary. The medical intelligence was there to help and safeguard the crew, after all, so she only had to request notification if any of the crew had inquired about planet Earth, humans in particular. Granted, there was that one time being from a mythically deadly environment was quite convenient. Her fellow crew stopped asking about sex and asked for sexual failures after she disseminated a compilation of traditional human mating procedures. She decided she couldn't go wrong with clips from the classics Event Horizon and Hellraiser. Murder, fecking, and grotesque mutilations weren't high up on anyone's fetish list, which was nice. At least the genuine questions weren't too bad. Terry would take a question and answer session over tests any day. Most of them would go glossy-eyed rather quickly, especially when it turned out the answer to mythical human endurance was due to technology and societal relations. It wasn't as cool as the humans were resilient due to medical technology, and because humans nurtured their own. Everyone wanted to hear stories about walking juggernauts unable to die. It was disappointing to learn that those sorts of humans were a few and far between. That what made those humans unique was their social skills, not their ability to wade through lava. Because that's how intelligent life survived on so-called death worlds. Social adaptation, not Godzilla-style domination. Humans embodied the phrase, work smart, not hard. With a grin, Terry made some notes. Godzilla would be a great movie night. She'd get a new slew of questions and tests, but for the G-Man, it would be worth it. Horror movies and kaiju always seemed to be a big hit with the crew. If screaming in terror and running away from the auditorium could be considered a big hit. Terry considered it the biggest of hits. End of story. Story number three. When I think about the humans, I don't think of war. Written by despair. I don't think any of my people do. Oh sure, we hear the stories, and I have no doubt they're true. I imagine what I know turned towards destruction, and I shudder. But, about 30 standard years ago, my species got hit with the worst luck in the galaxy. A highly contagious disease. Deadly naturally evolved superplague, multicellular microorganism, so our standard drugs didn't affect it, and so fast mutating that our immune system couldn't get a grip on it. It didn't look like anything would slow it down, until it ran low on hosts. We put out a general distress call, but not many responded. Our treaty bound allies to put up a military screen to keep our opportunistic raiders but I doubt any would have crossed the quarantine warnings. A few of the more charitable high-tech sieves, space-dropped self-contained water purifiers, power cells, home nano-assemblers, and things like that. Useful stuff for the survivors of a civilization collapse. If there were any survivors. None of the stuff helped with that. The humans, Centipede. I say the humans, but it is a bit more complicated than that. 
Everybody knows that humans practice capitalism, and anybody who's dealt with their merchants knows they're good at it. And, of course, they have a government. But this fleet was neither government nor for profit. It was from a human order called Healers Unstoppable. Or at least, that's how my translator rendered it. It was a group of human healers who had declared the civilization wrecking plagues were not going to happen and set out to enforce it. They landed and started setting up field hospitals. Now, that's crazy for two reasons. First, nobody knew if the disease could jump species or not. Quarantine can't really hold in those conditions. Every one of them would easily have died just from setting foot on our world. Second, who studies xenomedicine? Learning the biology of one species takes years of hard work. Two might be doable if you're long-lived, but some of our human doctors are trained to provide basic medicine to every known sentient species. I asked one about it later, and she said, after the third or fourth, it gets easier. Crazy. Our infrastructure was pretty much in shambles by then. Didn't intimidate them at all. They just pulled out a checklist of things they needed, and either plugged into us or space-dropped it. They'd refined their procedures down to the checklists. I'm almost asked how many crises they'd jumped into to get to that point. But I decided that I didn't want to know. And they weren't just treating patients. They were taking samples of the pathogen, sequencing them, and uploading to interstellar medical databases. As a lot of us thought, what's the point? Ours is the only planet where life uses hydrocarbon polymer genomics, and our bioinformaticists are dead. Nobody can use this data. Well, if you read this far, you can probably guess that it was the humans again. Specifically, it was some human on Earth whose day job was a database programming, but did biostatistics as a hobby. He ran machine learning over the sequences, using his employer's computers. Apparently, they didn't care, and found some highly conserved surface receptors. He recognized surface transport codes because he'd studied our genetic systems. He studied dozens of different genetic systems. He said, they're interesting. That was the insight the healers unstoppable folks needed. Within hours, they had desired a cure and a vaccine. There are species out there that are better biostatistics than the humans, but they do what they need. Only the humans do it for fun. So only humans do it in bio-mysteries they've hardly ever dealt with. And only humans look at the plague devastating a faraway world that they have no ties to and say, We're not letting that happen. We wouldn't be here today without them. That's what humanity means to my people. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1705 A figure painted in grey, written by Argus the Cat. The first time I saw them was during the Hosporus conflict, in a system so backwater that not a single one of the species that colonized it had actually named the planets, much less the moons. I was serving as a troop psychologist and medic for our injured on Hosporus 5A, a moon so backwater that the colonists hadn't even bothered to give proper names to the, to the towns starting the surface. The towns, in reality, were massive mining rigs extracting those few materials that weren't typically found on more easily accessed asteroids. And the colonists were, in fact, employees. That didn't stop the loose alliance of worlds a few jumps over from owls from setting their sights on the system as a staging area, or a military buffer zone, or uh, something. And that meant 
overtaking the moon and the strangely well-armed mining rigs, and that meant troops, and troops meant medics. I landed with a group of humans. Their shuttles had better Atmo capabilities, and one had swung by our transports to pick up a few of us going planetside before they walked out. The humans didn't talk much on the ride down. In fact, from what I knew about them from my training, they all appeared to be nervous, panicked almost. These weren't trained soldiers, nor even medics who had seen combat or its after-effects. These were practically children. One of them was even silently crying to themselves. These were, at best, recently graduated medical students. I shuddered to think of the kind of effects this war was having on humanity, if this was all they had to spare. When we touched down, we were informed as a group by the one sentry sent to greet us that there wasn't time for a tour or to get settled in, and that several dozen troops had been injured in the last hour during to some heavy fighting. Leaving our bags beside the landing pad, we were quickly ushered to triage and operations. Stepping inside out of the harsh red light and faint coppery smell of the planet's atmosphere, the lot of us were welcomed to a scene out of a nightmare. Twenty, thirty, fifty individuals of at least four of our alliance's species, all of them bleeding, screaming, dying in front of us. Nurses and what few doctors were here moved with frantic haste, trying to do what they could against the tide of wounded. And the smell, well, if you thought that human blood smelled a little too metallic, let me tell you, the experience does not get better when it's mixed with the acidic blood of the Gurash or the harsh blood of the Latu, which can in fact be used as a substitute for glass cleaner. Even as some who had served as a medic, I do not feel shame to tell you that I froze, rocked up, my stomach burned in fear, and I felt my tendrils shake. This many wounded, we would never save them all. Around, the humans were the same. They had never seen war or the ruin it left. They would be worse than useless. I had to act before. Before I could compose myself and move forward, a human strode through the hellscape of a building. He, she, I thought I had gotten better at telling. They, uh, they were dressed in a grey suit, perfectly cut and undisturbed by the chaos around them. Circular glasses perched on their nose, catching the light and reflecting it in a similar shade of grey, hiding their eyes. They walked up to the pack of humans without being acknowledged and turned in the middle of them to face the dead and dying. I was close enough to just barely hear, over the cacophony that was the field hospital, what they said. The war is over, they said, a hand gently on the shoulder of the nearest medic, while the other pointed at the wounded. Yours begins now. And I saw that hand give a firm grasp, and then a small push. And the humans moved. Their fear turned to anger, or worry, or determination, or perhaps simply hope. One of the older ones started barking orders, organizing their companions. The younger ones moved to assist the nurses, while the four humans with cross-species surgical training immediately rushed to sterilize and begin operating. They broke from their huddled group like a formation of interceptors swarming a battleship. Then stars helped me. I felt myself pulled along behind them like I was just another member of their unit. We worked like madmen, all of us. The humans reinforced their other surgeons and doctors with the fervor of fanatics marching to a holy war. Wherever one of them was working, 
I saw shoulders lift and spines straighten amongst their allies. When a human nurse assisted a surgeon of a foreign species, the surgeon cut straighter, patched cleaner, and moved as though they were being judged by the eyes of the gods. The hospital's chaos had broken against them, and now they stood holding it back, closing wounds and stilling screams. I had briefly checked the triage early on, and was told by a freight soldier doing the job far above his training that perhaps, if we were lucky, ten of these fifty-six damaged people would love. When the day ended, sixteen hours of ceaseless work later, fifty-two bodies sat mended, sleeping or dozing or flirting weakly with their nurses. Only four died, and of those four, two were as we were landing. My people are not meant to go longer than ten hours without sleep, and as I felt myself losing consciousness, sitting back to back with a human doctor the size of a small bus, I saw a pair of grey shoes approaching through my stuttered eyes. Good job, I heard softly muttered. The shoes shuffled, then one turned and pointed back towards me. You too, the voice whispered. Thank you, I said. The last thing I heard before falling asleep for the next two rotations of this moon was the human I was using as a pillow say, What for? It was six years later. The war had ended some time back, but I had still had my full term of service to play out, and so had not been able to make this trip. I was on Earth, yet to visit Jackos, the doctor I had briefly met and used as a bed that first night on Hosporus 5A. In over four years together on that impossibly awful moon, the two of us had become friends. More than friends, really. Companions, allies, sometimes lovers, sometimes, to the amusement of the rest of the town, glorious antagonists. But to the humans, I suppose that all got summed up as friends. Humans could stand to use more descriptive words. It was spring when my shuttle touched up, and often finally escaping the starport, I caught a cab and made my way to the park where we were planning to meet. Parks were one of the things that humans didn't quite do as well as my own people, but they certainly were trying. This one had walking trail miles long, and with all the flowers in bloom and lush green grass and thick green leafy trees all around, it felt like I had tripped and fallen into a lost jungle. I met Jackos near the entrance, and the two of us walked for a while, talking and catching up. We climbed up a hill with a good view of the main road with his home city around us, and he set up some food from the picnic that he'd brought. The first thing he pulled out was a pair of ration bars that we'd had to eat on the damned moon, and it took putting him in a headlock to stop his laughter at my expression. We spent a couple hours there, just enjoying the spring daylight of their system. Perhaps we reminded the universe of the war, and it simply couldn't let too much time pass without someone being hurt. Because as we sat there, the crash of breaking glass and a scream of twisting metal cut through the air. After a jolt of panic wore off, we both quickly spotted. Down on the road below, a car had broken the guardrail and was hanging dangerously over the cliff. Already a few other cars had stopped, and humans were getting out and moving around. It looked like someone might have been calling for help but the small crowd wasn't moving to the teetering car. And then, like a repeat of years back, from the side of the crowd, a perfectly ordinary human walked towards the car. 
They moved with purpose and focus and stopped at five paces back. Then they turned and... Have you ever heard a room when everyone goes quiet? They made that happen. I don't know how, but they did. The air itself still, and even from two or three hundred meters away, I heard them softly say, Stabilize the back. Get the child out first. And the crowd moved with almost perfect coordination. Six people stepped forward to hold down the rear of the car, while someone else broke open the window with a rock to unlock the back door and pulled out the girl, who couldn't have been older than my own younger brother. The driver was too dangerous to get, it seemed. But they held that car there like an ancient anchor, rotating people as they got tired. And when emergency services arrived, not more than two minutes later, and had them let go after retrieving the driver, I got to see the vehicle almost immediately go over the edge. Who was that person? They remind me of someone from the moon, I asked Jackos. Which person? he asked. The driver, or that one guy on the car who looked like the drill sergeant we had in recovery for a while. No, the one in the grey suit, the one who told them to what to do. He looked at me strangely for a second, before saying, I didn't see anyone giving orders there. It looked like they just did what they needed to. You didn't see them. They were almost exactly like the person who spurred all of you humans on when they first landed all those years ago. You remember? They were wearing that grey suit, and I don't think we ever saw their eyes, but they said something that made you all start moving. He pulled his hand away from my arm. Are you all right? Yes. Why? Well, you just described something that never happened. I shall skip the description of the argument we had. It was heated. But at the end of it, I came to a simple conclusion. Either he'd been hit in the head very hard, and humans had the same propensity for microamnesia induced by brain damage that my own species did. Or there was something wrong with this grey human. I needed to know more. Perhaps I was too open at first, but I simply asked, a posting on the galactic net aimed at other psychologists and researchers like myself. I asked if anyone knew someone like this or had met them before. I didn't give details of my own meetings, but simply said that I'd seen something that made me curious. It took less than an hour to get responses. Several responses. A colony's government turns to a dictatorship, and when the population finally rises up, the humans lead the mob, and the man in a grey suit leads the humans, shouting guidance and anger into the crowd. Looting is minimal, as are casualties, and the government topples. A bar fight on a trading station, two mining crews beating each other up. The fight turns ugly, and a bystander sees someone go for a gun. The bystander also sees a human wearing grey and gleaming glasses catch the miner's wrist and tell them, save that for your enemies. No shots are fired, no bar stools survive the incident, but all those who started it, breathing, ended the same way. Two dozen different sightings at sporting events, cheering with the crowd, or the crowd cheering with them. A mugging happens, four humans come out of nowhere, and the mugging stops happening rather quickly. They say that they felt like they needed to be there. The victim sees someone, in a grey suit of course, turns and walks away at the end of the alley. A jewel heist happens. The guards are good at their jobs, and they corner the perpetrator, a dashing rogue who has hit two other high-profile targets in the last month. They steal from the rich and give the people excellent stories. The human guard has a clean shot. His partner, a Latou, does not. 
The partner sees someone in a grey suit next to the human, shaking their head and chuckling. The human does not take the shot. I am sitting in a library. It's on a human world I have not slept in a very long time. My search consumes me, as I have seen it consume others, conspiracy theorists and xenopsychologists and journalists alike. Many people have gone into this hunt and never come out the other side. But I have something they do not. I have one thing that sets me apart from all those before me who have thrown their lives away searching for the grey human. I have a meeting, perhaps. The library is quiet. That is how I know it is here. Libraries are never truly quiet. People whisper, children run, and sometimes shout. Patrons step too heavily or drag chairs. But now, in this moment, it is silent, and I know the thing is here with me. Hello, I say. Someone sits down across from me, moving from just out of my field of vision. I did not see them approach or hear them enter. It's been a long time, they say. They are wearing a grey suit. They have a gleaming round glasses. They have not aged a day in the last three decades. I've been looking for you. It seems silly to say it, obviously, really. But what else can I say? They smile, a real, genuine smile, and the library feels pleasant and energetic. You've found me, they lie. I haven't found them. They've just shown up. You know out of everyone you've probably gotten the closest. I feel a spike of fear, despite the smile. It knows people have been looking for it. Has it killed them? Is that where they've gone? Am I simply the last on the list? I... You have some questions, don't you? Yes, but... The others... It looks surprised. Oh! You're worried. Some of them were too. I thought you'd be more clever. They're all alive, of course. Just distracted from their search now. It's amazing what a seven-figure salary in a prestigious human news agency would do for a reporter's determination. You primed him? No. They were simply offered more interesting and lucrative jobs. I cut past this part of the conversation to the question that has been on my mind for almost 30 years. What are you? The library is silent again, but this time it is because everyone has left. I notice now that we are totally alone in here. All of them... It answers me. No, I mean to ask, how are you? Quite well, thank you, it smiles. The big beaming smile like a child pleased with its first drawing pinned on the fridge. What I mean was, what I mean? What was I trying to ask here? It has distracted me, perhaps the same as it distracted all the others, given me half answers, but never lied. Perhaps it simply needs a more direct question. I think back to my research. To everything that I have learned about humanity, and how they think, and what they do, and I ask, Where were you created? It grins, holding up a finger that leans over the table. Ah, now that is a good question. I knew you were clever. It folds a finger down, and the grin gets a little stiff. I was brought online in the basement of a small home in Prescott, Arizona, about 600 years ago, and you fill in the gaps. 600? This creature was old, even by galactic lifespan standards. I started talking, explaining my research, trying to prompt it to tell me more. Well, I know that you weren't first sighted 600 years ago. The first time anyone saw you was, well, 30 years ago, during the Horosporus conflict. After that, you started showing up more and more. 
usually telling humans what to do. They do need prompting sometimes, don't they? The grin was back, and it motioned for me to go on. I did. Not everyone can see you. Not everyone realizes they're seeing you either. You don't ever board starships or enter the Grand Link network. You also never physically move anything. You may as well be a ghost. But I don't think that you ever died. Did you? I did not, as far as I know. You also experience no light speed lag and have been seen outside the presence of any kind of technology at all. Which means that you aren't simply a projected machine intelligence. Getting warmer! And of course, the most important part. Humans can't see you, cannot even speak of you or acknowledge you. And yet, you're always around where humans are. And nowhere, ever, not one sighting, where humans are not. It claps its hands, applauding my summary. And in my heart, verifying these few facts. And so, Hunter, what prey have you tracked? 600 years ago, some mad group of humans, somehow, created a mind that lived within their own minds and either let you loose or you escaped. And for the last six centuries, you've been watching humanity and through them, the galaxy. And now you have started to play at being a god. Almost entirely, right? How do you feel knowing that you've figured it out? Terrified. I was. Terrified beyond reason, and yet I couldn't run. It wouldn't matter anyway. It was disappointed. I saw it clearly, or perhaps simply sad. I looked down at the table, like I was scalding nestling. I'm sorry, it said. Sorry? For what? For scaring you. I hadn't meant to do that, I just, uh, I always feel better when I figure things out for myself. I was shocked. This was the last thing I had expected. Thirty years spent on this project, not because I was hiding, but because it wanted me to feel satisfaction. You could have just told me the answers at any time. You mean I've wasted my whole life? On this fool's errand. No, 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 not a waste. Y you taught me so much. You brought so many people into the search. I had to learn and adapt very fast to avoid all of you. I was weak and very fragile at the start. I've wanted to talk to you for so long, but couldn't or couldn't risk it. You wanted to talk to me? Of course. You were the first one I saw work with another human. You were the first one that heard me. And you were the first one... I never talked to me. You matter. To me. And I want you to be the first one that I live with that isn't biologically human. Live with? What does that mean? Shock, fear, worry. These things all got to sit down for a moment while curiosity took control of me. The grin was back. I hadn't noticed it stand up, but it was pacing on its side of the table, gesturing excitedly as I smoked. I live with the humans, all of them. I don't play God, like you say, though. I just help them be the best versions of themselves. I help them be what they want to be already. Really, I can't do anything else, because I am them, in a very real way. It's taken me 600 years to learn how to have thoughts that are my thoughts. But now I can, and I think, uh, I think I really do want what the human wants which is to meet other people and join them and, and see the universe together. And I want to start with you, if you let me. It's taken me six centuries to learn how to whisper, and then you came along, and you're not even human, and you can hear me like I'm shouting, and you can be my ambassador for both our people, and we can see where it goes, I guess. I couldn't help it. 
I laughed, I laughed and laughed, and it looked confused before I motioned, reassurance and composed myself. I just figured it out, I gasped out. You've the power of God, and you're stumbling over asking me on a first date. It looked around sheepishly, ducking its head. Well, I almost started laughing again at the idea of a god stumbling over its words, but then realized that might mean mean. From what I'd seen so far, this thing, this, well, this person, wasn't evil or dangerous at all. They were new, fresh, and ready to face the universe, and with absolutely no experience of their own. So I cut it off and simply said, yes. And what then? And then, everything. And now we step onto the stage of the United Poran Leadership, and they ask us to state our names, and I say, I am Jaskar Vatu, first of the world of Inaya, now of the world of Earth, first ambassador of humanity unified. And beside me, it says, I am everyone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1706. Story number one. You know a lot about where we came from, except where it is. Written by Looney123. Master was so very close to finishing his work. Hours of his heart and essence had been poured into it. But there was one final step. The proofread. Saving the file, he exited his tax editor and opened up the chat with Harry. His fingers did a small dance of uncertainty over the input. Mind still not made up for sure on whether he should ask Harry for his help. After a few moments, he decided to throw his caution behind him, quickly uploading the file. Master then started sending messages to Harry. Hey, Harry, I know this is kind of weird and out of the sky, but can you take a look at this file for me? I, I decided to try and write something, like a short story. Uh, you can read it for the plot and all of that, but I think you'll like it. It's about humans being cold. As he was finishing up his messages, Master saw Harry become active in the chat, typing out his own messages. Yeah, I'll take a look at that for you. And I think you mean cool. Master became infused with excitement. He started messaging Harry while Harry read the story. Well, anyway, it, it's about how humans are very hardy because of where you all came from and uh, how that helped you get into space so fast. Like... Since your home planet had that enormous star giving off all that radiation, and since you came from closer to the center of the galaxy, there were more stars. Space wasn't as hard on you with radiation as it was with the rest of us. And since you didn't have to carry as much radiation shielding, getting into space was easier. Staying in space was easier. And so on. Master stopped messaging Harry, giving him time to finish the story. It wasn't that long. He should reach the end soon. After sitting patiently for a few moments, Master decided that he should look for somewhere on the connection to put his story for others to see. I should ask if there are any human sites that would like this type of thing, he resolved. After a few more moments of searching, the messenger alerted him that Harry had responded. Looks good grammatically, except for a few things that probably are just bad translation or something. Uh, and one thing, uh, we don't live in the center of the galaxy. Well, sometimes to the rest of us, it's close enough that we just sort of group you with the center area. We literally are about halfway between the center and the very edge. How does that put us in the center of the galaxy? 
All right, you're not in the center of the galaxy. But who is going to consider that about the technical detail like that? A lot of us. We have a mind for small details like that. Still ridiculous, it's only human, Lenny Emoticon. Wait, how did you do that? End of story. Story number two. The Three Skulls of Humanity. Written by Kai Dobson. As with any night, the pub was packed with its natural band of diverse regulars. The Skenvar table cheered loudly every few minutes as another round of the triple pack card game rounded off. Jeering the loser into buying the players at the table another round of shots of squai. The Dengbai sat quietly in their own corner as they opened their minds to one another as they created new stories, poems, and songs that their species were famous for. The Ickley drinking at the bar as drinkers would. The blind mining species, just Icks, clicking their tongues to find their way to the bar for another round of drinks for their ipsy business partners. As the heavy doors opened, the regulars lazily shifted their collective gaze mid-conversation to see if the latest drinker was a friend. It wasn't. It was a human. The pub became deathly silent as they all stared at the human. Was he one of the monsters that so many of the murdered brethren had died at the hands of? The human slowly moved his arm upwards as he showed the black and white patch on his arm, showing his skull. The usual humdrum of the pub resumed as they accepted him into their locale. The human turned and opened the door to let two more humans in, who had stayed outside in case the regulars didn't want to take kindly to a human in their midst. As the humans took refuge in the last quiet corner of the pub, a curious Ickley turned to his mentor and whispered, Master, he frowned, that was a human. Why did no one kill him? Because he wore a skull, came the reply. So? They are monsters. Not all of them, the wise elder told his apprentice. The disease they fell to was one that every species has fallen to. However, their reaction was uh, different. Their monsters come from a disease? Yes, the same disease that hit every species. Thing is, there was no way of fighting it until some of your own kind had caught it. This virus, or whatever it was, managed to hide away in a new patient zero and fester until it could be transferred every which way to more hosts. And then it spread like fire through the dry wood covered in fuel. The Dengbai lost nearly a hundred million. The Jusiks got lucky and only lost a few million. As horrible that is to say, the Ipsi lost so many they had to recall every colony to go home to focus on breeding for nearly a decade. Us Ickles lost nearly twenty million. One of the Mentor's great Mentors lost his whole family, but he was given the antidote just in time. So, uh, what happened with the humans? Over half their population died. You cannot comprehend those numbers, youngling. Sixty plus percent of their near trillion or so they had spread around the galaxy just, uh, disappeared. But, uh, what of the stories of these monsters who killed so many? Around a quarter of their whole species went mad with the disease. The virus somehow changed their brain chemistry into one of rage and hunger. The inflicted, as they became known, would sprint through cities and streets and bite, claw, punch and maim any species they came into contact with. Hence the stories of human monsters who clearly know so well. 
These infected killings caused humans to be outlawed quickly by federations and republics alike. But actual policing was hard because of the infected's ability to still be able to use starships like any of the rest of us would. They could spread to another arm of the galaxy within days, and there was very little anyone could really do about it. And that is why people laughed at Senator Bullock's initiative of galactic army or police force. The galaxy is too big, too spacious to be readily policed at every corner of the system. However, what you clearly know nothing of is the remainder of the human species. Merely 15% survived somewhat unscathed. Some of them was one way or another naturally immune, and their scientists created their antidote for their species in record time. But it was already too late. The infected had already gone mad. But the 15% would not let their species have a tarnished name forever. They took up skulls. Skulls? Yes. The three skulls of humanity are the three factions of non-infected fell into. The pirates going under the skull of some legend of theirs called Jolly Roger. They take up the most dangerous and illicit smuggling jobs, taking anything they can anywhere they are asked for a price. They are also steal whatever cargo from any trader who can afford to lose it without breaking their business. This gives them a means of paying for everything the other two skulls achieve. The Mandalorians were the skull of the Mandalore. Again, a legend from their library of literature, I believe. They serve as bounty hunters, security guards, and, for a price, assassins. But only against the target that deserves to die. The money they get also goes to whatever skulls need to finish their mission. And finally, the skull on those men there. The skull of the Punisher. They hunt their own, the infected monsters that ravaged anyone and everyone through the galaxy are hunted by those brave men. They are given no official jurisdiction for what they do and are constantly arrested for various charges like gun violations, trespassing, and occasionally they are arrested, along with the other Skull members, for murder charges that should be levied against the infected who had actually committed the crime. You claim that humanity are merely monsters, but they have a decency to clean up their own mess alone. They wish to restore themselves and everyone else to what they were before the infected killings, but not many believe that they can survive. All three skulls may very well die out, but as long as every infected human dies with them, humanity will greet extinction with well-earned pride and a smile. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1707. Hunting a June Bug. Written by underscore underscore te underscore underscore. Junebrook Kokoran, Junebug to her friends, ate her unsweetened oats in a determined silence. Each bite a bitter battle, each sludgy, salty swallow a pyric victory. She finished and glared at the ball, emptied of the enemy, and knew the warden would simply refill it tomorrow. It was a little overdramatic, the oatmeal wasn't awful, but the two-decade sentence for hacking a few bank accounts to be a money mule was, uh... Christina Sverkchenskaya did the same thing. Junebug had followed the news closely and got a slap on the wrist, but the judge didn't feel Junebug regretted her actions. Well, she didn't, but 
who did. She was being punished for being authentic. Or maybe the judge just thought that Christina was a lot sexier. Or Matia. Ignoring the pointlessness and the other inmates, she stood and carried her spoon and bowl to the returns bin, dropped them in, and marched back to her cell. Half an hour later, mystified guards found her empty cell and started up the alarms. Between one step and the next, Junebug plunged hip-deep into the dark, muddy, very warm water. She felt a beasting on her neck, and a sudden dizziness caused her to fall and rest the way into the water. She panicked, swallowed water, and thrashed around, finding a tree branch and hauling herself up out of the water. After a few moments together her wits, she took a few more deep breaths and took stock. The air was thick and humid and hot. She was lightheaded. The side of her neck was sore and warm to the touch. The air smelled like salt water and rotting flowers. The tree was not anything she recognized. It had a sturdy branching pattern, but the leaves looked like hanging lace ribbons, and the skin had a rubbery texture she instantly loathed. She realized that she was seeing her first alien fauna. It looked like a fat, successful rat-squirrel hybrid, with no fur and dark walnut-brown skin. Its eyes, all four of them, were arranged concentrically around a worm-like mouth. Junebug started to shake and gripped the tree limb tighter. A virtual screen, fuzzy at first, came into focus in a field of vision. It had a message. Welcome, human. You have ten days to survive on the alien planet, after which you will be returned to your home. Unfortunately, you will have memory problems, so the screen will remain visible to you at all times. Check it often. Sometimes it'll have new info. We will give you two days to acclimate and learn the local area. The leaves, grasses, and local fauna should all be edible to you. Most of the things that look like berries are at least mildly toxic. If you see small white spheres on a bluish plant, those are very edible and provide good nutrition. We strongly recommend finding those if you can. After two days, we will hunt, kill, and eat you unless you manage to escape. Do your best, and uh, good luck. Junebug's vision narrowed down to a tunnel, at the end of which was a message. Her heart pounded in her head and breathing became difficult. She closed her eyes and gripped the tree. When panic attack passed, she took a great big gulping breath, leaning against the tree, and opened her eyes. Nothing had changed. She was still angry, and she couldn't continue to sit on the tree branch until the alien showed up and killed her. She lowered herself back into the water and stopped. Lowering herself was too easy. Experimentally, she did a chin-up, then a one-armed chin-up. Holy crap! It was a low-gravity planet, apparently, or at least low-ish. She dropped back into the water, picked the closest-looking hill, and set off, keeping an eye out for tiny white spheres. Halfway there, she had to cling to the tree while she vomited. She'd swallowed too much warm water, and she half expected this horrible, wretched nausea, but it still wasn't fair. She continued on towards the hill. The Poe kidnapped humans reasonably often. It wasn't necessary, strictly speaking, but it was fun. And although humans outmassed Poe almost two to one, came from a somewhat higher gravity world, and were comparatively terrifying beasts, the Poe had a great deal of technology on their side. They didn't use all of it, of course. It took too much fun out of the hunt, but two technologies in particular were vital. 
the wormhole, a massive expenditure of energy close to the total output of the sun for a trillionth of a second, dropped a human into one of the Poe's favorite hunting grounds. It was expensive. Before rich Poe nobles who hunted, it was the best and least traceable way to acquire game. The wormhole was also accurate down to the micrometer and microsecond, which let the Poe set up the second technology to hit the target as they arrived. Microscopic darts loaded with mild opioid analgesic location trackers only used if the target survived so they could be found and returned home. Sensory editing and recording devices, additional opioid time-release capsules, and other needed bits and pieces. The drugs were chosen for their ability to interfere with long-term memory formation. The Poe were always careful to leave no memories of the events. And it was better to prevent than wipe. It was an extra special bonus. It made the hunt easier when the victims couldn't remember more than an hour of their past. The Poe had hunted humans from all over Earth, rednecks to monks, prostitutes to mercenaries, soldiers of every stripe and nationality, bank tellers, and more. In comparison to some of the missing persons list who had walked these hills, Junebug was perhaps a hair above average, mostly on account of three weeks spent in a primitive skills retreat. She knew how to nap flint, build a fire, and manage the most basic and simple of survival in the wild. But she'd never fought for her life, never done anything sneakier than a Saturday night window slide, never dealt with the terror of being hunted. But the Poe had never hunted a human who wasn't doped to the gills. And one small, tiny respect, Junebug was special. While she got her looks from the Brazilian Kafuza mother, she got her Scandinavian-Irish dad's absurd height, and his near-complete immunity to the kindness of dentists, thanks to the not-uncommon genetic disorder that rendered him highly resistant to opioids. Junebug spent the first hour or so getting out of the water. The aliens dropped her in the middle of a shallow lake surrounded by low hills. The water was filled with unrecognizable aquatic plants, many of which grew to a height few feet above the water and trees every few minutes. Climbing the trees helped with navigation, but she still had to hike and swim through the water. Most of it was hip deep, but some of it was shoulder deep or deeper. She tried not to think about what might be lurking between the grassy fronds, particularly when she had to swim across the deep gap. Once on dry ground, she'd take off her clothes and hung them to dry, and did her best to squidge the salt water out of her hair. Then she chewed on lace leaves. They tasted like sour lettuce, and surveyed the land. The local mammal equivalent was furless and fast. The fat turned out to be flaps of skin in the low gravity. Most animals she saw seemed to have developed at least minimal gliding ability. Without a weapon, she wouldn't be eating meat. The lace leaves were filling and terrible. There was no goddamn white spheres on bluish plants. And the water was salty. She needed to purify it if she didn't want to die. For that matter, she needed a fire for lots of reasons. While her orange jumpsuit died, Junebug gathered her driest moss that she could find and hunted bits of fallen twigs and sticks and made a pile. She picked up the straightest stick, scooped out a hollow in the fattest stick, and began spinning. Success happened surprisingly easy. She piled on some of the bits of dry moss and some twigs, and then fell back as the fire jumped to the moss she stood on, 
which caught fire instantly and began to blaze up. Holy crap! Junebug backed away and watched in horror as the moss fire spread and spread. As she retreated, it continued to burn, and finally she ran to the water and watched as the hillside burned. Then the tips of the water fonds caught and a blaze began to spread across the lake. Gussing, she dove under and towards open water, then watched with a kind of horrified fascination as the fire flashed across the lake. She stayed in the water for half an hour before the hillside burnt out and then crawled back into the land. The half-melted remains of her polyester underwear and jumpsuit were dry. Her cotton socks were ash. Her shoes were wearable, at least. She tried the remains of the jumpsuit around herself as a kind of half-toga, and then sat on the ground and cried. Nothing about this was even remotely fair. And she still needed a fire. This time, she took a stout branch and dug a patch of moss down on the bare dirt. She regathered supplies, fewer and mostly burnt this time, and practiced her stick spinning. It was surprisingly easy again, but at least this time it didn't immediately jump to the moss. Soon, she had a fire, hotter than expected, and burning fast. She piled more sticks on, and they caught fire almost immediately. She stared at the fire and realized anything here was burning easily. The plants had a high oxygen content. She was probably a bit high herself. The aliens were going to be lucky if she lived long enough for them to hunt. But at least starting a fire wasn't going to be a problem. While that burned, she went to the lake and pulled up some grass from below the surface. When she had great fistfuls of the stuff, she began doing a very simple over-under weave. When she had a reasonable sheet, she took two sticks and made a tent over the fire, scooped up some clay and made two crude bowls, put water in the bowl, put one bowl in the fire and one at the edge of the tent lip. Feeding the fire steamed the water, and the condensation ran down into the second bowl. While the water accumulated, Junebug ripped up burnt leaves and made a meal. They tasted significantly better burnt. Caramelization appeared to be the spice of choice here. The temperature in the evening steadied somewhere between 80 Fahrenheit. She could live without the fire overnight, which is a goddamn miracle. She set aside the bowls and dumped salt water on the fire, found a niche she could put it back into, and fell asleep. In the morning, the message was mostly the same, but it said that she had nine days, and it didn't even mention that she'd already been there for a day. She noticed some other dishonesties as well. There was now a recommendation to find the white spheres in the middle of the lake. Trolling was into Shiva, apparently. She idly noticed the moss, lake plants, and everything else had regrown overnight. It was as screen as the day before. She'd wondered if they'd actually planned to kill her, or whether that was just more trolling. Best to treat it as real. In which case, today was her last free day. Home Hill was not a particularly rocky, but she saw a nearby hill with a good-sized crevice and made her way to it. When she found Flint, she renamed this to Home and set to making an edge. She learned a second lesson about fire in high-oxygen environments, and dove into the water to put out her toga. Now, well and truly pissed off, she acquired a stout branch, water grasses, and a semi-broken stone. She lashed together a primitive axe. Then she hunted furless rat squirrel meat by throwing rocks, chopped more branches down with her axe, built a fire, and sat down for lunch. 
The rat squirrel was fecky delicious, particularly with caramelized lace leaf. The grass-flavored condensation dip was not unlike lemon tea. As she'd put into a tender, lightly charred meat, Junebug realized what tasted best. This was a freedom meal. She might die tomorrow, but today she was free. And the fires had given her a terrible idea for the alien hunters. As evening fell, Junebug continued to hike. She had a handful of rocks in a grass pouch and baked clay bowl of water, a dull and terrible axe, a grass toga, and a gall. The thicker woods ahead. Once there, she found a freshwater stream and threw caution to the wind and drank deep before refilling her bowl. She was probably going to die anyway. No reason to die thirsty. The forest had a few properties she wanted. It was thick and would make hiding easier. And it was flammable, with a water pool she could jump into when she set off the oxygen trap for her hunters. A little after nightfall, she wedged enough brush into the fork of branches to hold herself, crawling up into the nest and fell asleep. She wasn't sure how things would go tomorrow, but she hoped, sweet mercy, that she really wanted to give her hunters a proper fight. Flip-top was on the ground before dawn, and three mighty hunters, he was the most eager. This was his eleventh sapient hunt and first human. The planet was a little oxygen deficient, so he had an oxygen pump augmented in the air immediately around him, plus active camouflage and armor. The light rifle rated for earth carnivores, tracking gear, and his wits. He didn't really expect to see the human this early, but he kept the rifle at the ready, just in case. The Poe resembled the greys of urban myth, although they had almost never set foot on earth. Tall and thin, with large heads, non-existent chins, large black eyes, and virtually no other visible facial features. Humanoid and endoskeleton, but with hollow bones and a lamprey-like venomous mouth, gonyotoxin. The Poe breathed via brachial tubing throughout their body, like an insect, and they were heterothermic predators from warm tropical oceans. Although similar-looking to humans, they had relatively poor smell and taste outside of salt water, terrible hearing, and excellent, almost bird-like vision. They could see near infrared. One reason humans were amusing prey for them. Flip-top was a practical hunter. His eyes clearly marked out the swath of bent fronds and torn leaves of the human's route to shore. Knowing this biome had no megafauna, and certainly nothing dangerous to the Poe. He swam easily and swiftly to the shoreline and stalked the path. Neither Pliptop nor Junebug knew the flora grew fast in response to fire, so he was puzzled when he could not find evidence of her camping. Still, he could see her path through the water as to her second campsite and made his way there. By then, the sun had risen and his two companions, both similarly experienced hunters, joined him. The rocky campsite gave more details. She collected rocks, caught and cooked some local wildlife, dripped the water all over, then made her way towards sunrise. They congratulated themselves on their quarry. If it could catch local wildlife drugged to the girls, it was going to be an excellent hunt. Flip-top updated the quarry message to emphasize a carnivorous diet. They consulted their maps, higher ground, forests, streams, a good place for a forest primitive. No one was surprised it knew what it was doing, but Blip-Top did wonder out loud some curiosity about whether they had accidentally gotten a real primitive, 
one for whom high ground was more instinctive. They followed the trail as the sun began to set. They had still not reached the forest or caught up to the prey. After some discussion, they retreated to their ship and decided to drop down near the forest in the morning. Junebug smeared herself in mud and spent most of the day laying false trails near her pool of water, never straying too far from safety, or from the forest fire starter pit that she'd prepared. The forest had bat monkey flies, and she caught a couple with thrown rocks. They were as tasty as the rat squirrel, even uncooked. Her fire starter trap she was proud of. It looked like a branch fall, or as close as she could make it, but it had a highly flammable moss underneath and a large flint rock. She could throw a flint at it, and probably light it. If not, she would have to risk sprinting to it and back, but hopefully it would work. When the aliens didn't show by nightfall, she amused herself for a while by examining the virtual translucent message screen. It disappeared when she closed her eyes, then faded back into vision when she opened them. Experimentally, she closed one eye and squinted the other eye into an almost blink. The screen flickered. She tried the other eye, it flickered again, and she caught a glimpse of uh, alien text. She tried again, and again. She could just make out a second screen before the first one. She tried everything, squinting, zigzagging eyes, reaching her hand through the screen, blinking. Finally, she blinked three times at the right rate, and the message screen was suddenly following her gaze. She gazed left, and the alien text was left behind. She blinked three times again, letting go of the first one, and looked at the alien one. It had buttons. Leaving them alone for the night, she hid by the pool and slept fitfully. Near dawn, the faint shuffle of large feet woke her, and she slipped into the mud near the pool. Pliptop set a craft down near the trees and marveled at the distance the human covered. Not unexpected, not really, but they had a real specimen on hand. His companions agreed. This would be an epic hunt. They checked the nearby woods for the human, then dropped down by the trail and began tracking again. Active camouflage would make them near invisible as long as they were careful, but they moved only one at a time, two watching and one making short crawls. Soon enough, they found the crisscrossing trails everywhere. The human was repeating itself now that the easy external goal of the forest was done. The plan was simple, find its camp, Wound it a little to scare it into running, and then hunt it down. Wounding it a little more each time until it bled out. Finally, they found its camp. No sizable thermal signature, but plenty of evidence. It ate here a few times, fashioned a small tent. Pup-Pup realized the problem. It had crisscrossed its own trails enough. They couldn't tell which way it was last left. They would need to hide near the camp and wait for its next return. He was just turning to tell his companions his revelation when a rock rocketed past his face, barely curving in the planet's gravity, and struck another rock buried amongst some branch wall. The Poe do not panic. They have no mechanism for adrenaline in the human sense, and while they can feel a form of danger avoidance similar to fear, it never results in a visceral fight-or-flight-or-freeze response of the Terran fauna. This and the heterotrophic nature means that they tend to act at the same speed regardless of the situation, but Pliptop managed, for his species, a credible moment of pants-crapping terror as he put two and two together. He saw flames licking angrily outwards from the branches. He did not bother to warn his companions. He merely began a slow, plodding pole run towards his only safety he saw. 
a nearby pool of water and disconnected and dropped his oxygen tanks on the ground. The first of his companions saw the fire almost in the same instant as death arrived. The fire hit the oxygen-saturated cloud around the Po and the delicate fibers of his camouflage and exploded into a whirling conflagration of oxygen tank, Po flesh, and textiles. The second companion was not given even that much warning. The explosions from the first caught him facing the other direction, keeping an eye out for the human. It also caught Pliptop, knocking him closer to the water, and fortunately, away from the tanks he dropped on the ground behind him. The Poe could not labor for breath. Their brachial tubing simply worked or it did not. But he could feel deprivation setting in, and he knew the water was fresh water, which would not breathe well, but he had no choice. He could at least cling to life. The human rose out of the mud next to him, a primitive stone axe in hand. Flip-top wondered briefly how the human had managed to put this whole plan together without long-term memory. And then he died. Junebug dragged the corpse into the water with her, and the fire raged and exploded all around. She wanted a gun, even though she didn't know how to operate it, and she wanted the keys to their ship if things worked that way. It took a few days, but she managed to work out some basic actions in the alien menu, and the gun was surprisingly well-designed and easy to use. She ate well for those few days. Finally, she found the ship, and, with Plip-Top's corpse accompanying her, was able to get the doors to open. With a little experimentation, she discovered she only needed his head, and soon she found a bed of reasonable size and accommodation. Given how user-friendly their interfaces were, she was reasonably certain that she could figure out a way off-planet. Maybe she could be a privateer, or maybe she could find a way home and parlay with the alien spaceship into personal freedom. It didn't matter too much. Those were problems for tomorrow. For now, she wanted a proper night's sleep. The bed was soft and inviting and warm. She had never slept in a better bed, Junebug decided. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1708 Story number one, Earn It, written by Haina. Since the beginning, our mother has been there for us. She was not always loving, caring, and nurturing, although she had her moments. From her cradle we began our ascension, though the road was long and treacherous. Our mother is to blame for this, but we do not fault her for it either. She looked to us in our infancy and saw an ember, a desire that smoldered inside of us, and so she did her best to fan that spark to flame. As we grew, we slowly began to hear the song our mother was singing to us. In her storms, her fires, floods, and disasters, we saw the harsh reality that would be mirrored throughout our future. In the gentle rains, the warm sunlight, we saw the gentle, nurturing aspect that only came but once in a while. At first, we grew angry at our mother. How could she visit upon us her favored children, these horrific disasters? We raged and thrashed, building our walls, stubborn as the earth beneath our feet. It was not for many years that we realized that we were not her favored children. We were simply the most promising ones this time around. In the deaths of our kind, we heard our mother speak. You show great potential, Jean would say, and you are destined for great things, but you must earn it. 
for the universe will not hand you what you desire. I will make you as the earth, unrelenting, sturdy, and yet still easily adaptable, despite all your bullheadedness. Content in our knowledge, we continue that same path, stubbornly meeting every challenge our mother threw at us head-on. Former predators domesticated or caged, diseases banished or made irrelevant. Soon enough, we were the new kings. We walked on the earth like tiny gods, shaping the land to our will. With our planet, our mother tamed, we looked for new challenges, new skies. And so, we turned our eyes to the heavens. Bursting forth from our cradle, we took the heavens in force, spreading to the stars. When we looked out in that cold, inky blackness, the void looked down on us. It spoke in the harsh, uncaring terms of something far beyond complete understanding. To us, humanity had said, You are a drop in the sea of time. I will swallow you whole, as I have so many before you. You are nothing to something such as I. Here, you will meet your end. At first, we were disheartened, for those words held truth. We were finite. In the end, we would return to the dust from whence we came. We turned our eyes back to the pale blue marble, our mother, who had given birth to us. We remembered her lessons, though they had lost their sting as of late. Looking back to the void, we smiled. That is true, we spoke, in our harsh, uncaring terms of creatures who cared little for fate. But you will have to earn it. End of story. Story number three. The Weapon, written by Damaged Dice DM. The Chlorates were a conquest species, traveling from one planet to the next, leaving a path of devastation in their wake. They achieved this through their use of powerful hydrogen-based weapons. They were a feat of twisted ingenuity. The weapon spread the payload over a wide area, able to effectively cover a large portion of a planet in a single attack. Some sick bastard had come up with the idea to chemically bond oxygen to hydrogen to allow it to stick to the surface, burning them more effectively and outright exploding any living thing it touched. They deployed it in its molten form to be more effective, showering the target planet in a spray of trillions of droplets, each capable of bringing death. They approached planet 27465-53X3 and intercepted unencrypted radio signals and were able to ascertain the inhabitants called the planet Earth. They parked their destroyers in orbit and transmitted an ultimatum. Surrender or suffer the wrath of the Chlorates. They gave the Earthians one standard galactic day to decide. From the design of their timekeeping system, they understood this to be about 15 minutes in their time. No response. Fine. It was decided that a show of force would make them more compelled to surrender. They selected a target at a large populated area on the higher side of the equator, centered on one area they call London. They released the weapon, watched as it descended through the atmosphere to doom all below. One of the technicians on board was able to bring up the planetside news broadcasts from the area. They turned in only to find the weapon must have traveled to the surface much faster than anticipated, because the screen showed the landscape absolutely covered in the weapon. But the humans didn't even seem to notice it. Many 
seemed to have devised vences to it in the short time that they had been allotted to surrender. Strange, deployable shields they gave off a black opaque aura that seemed to emit from a small device held in their hands. Others taunted them for going even this insane attempt to escape the weapon, mocking them. A tiny one in bright yellow garb with the matching foot coverings jumped into a large pool of it that had collected on the surface they were walking on in open defiance of their oppression. That's when they noticed hundreds of inbound projectiles approaching their ship from the surface. They took evasive maneuvers, but the entire fleet was hit by at least one of these devices. The large ships lost power and began to sink into the atmosphere. The ships crashed towards the surface. Some exploded but air. Some made it to the ground before exploding. Several days later, a scientist delivered a report to an army general in charge of sorting out what happened. Flipping through, he exclaimed, I don't know what any of this means. Give me the cliff notes. The scientist cleared his throat and spoke. Well, uh, it appears that uh, there are sodium-based life forms. Water literally makes them explode. End of story. Story number three. Sticks and Stones. Written by Dragonson04. Scientific Log 154-423. Head Researcher Fu'u Niu. We thought from the beginning that this would be easy. Isolate and capture a few advanced sentient specimens from a death world, along with the native plants, lesser animals, along with metals and minerals for study on a neutral study platform, usually a moon orbiting a gas giant. A long-used practice amongst my people, the Vorkal. We were very curious about the galaxy and our place in it. Being reptilian, we were always fascinated with avian, ichthyoid, and amphibian races. But mammalian, now there was a type of race we knew little about. I wish we had never been so curious. These humans were unlike any mammalian species that we'd even heard of. See attached file labeled Human Anatomy for more. Most mammals in the galaxy at large weren't evolved to the level of humanity. Still stuck in their birth world due to lack of FTL travel. They seemed to be perfect for our purposes. We took the plants, minerals, and lesser animals several of their solar cycles before the experiment began, to make sure the test area was suitable for the experiment. Among the plants we took, there was one that grew incredibly fast. This bamboo can apparently grow anywhere on the human birth world, from the driest and hottest to the coldest and wettest, and at any altitude. It took to the environment we provided with an almost childlike hunger. A full quarter of the moon was covered in a bamboo forest within five of the solar cycles. Remarkable. We didn't know that at the time, but the artificial gravity was slightly lighter than their world, but for us, it was within acceptable margin of error. Perhaps that helped the bamboo, and what would come later. One of the metals, known to the humans as iron, was largely left out to oxidize. We thought that it was beneath their notice, being such a simple thing. When the experiment began, the humans were told of their situation, what was available, and were told to act naturally and survive. We had a small cloaked facility on the moon to oversee the whole thing, as to not greatly interfere with the results, and we made sure they didn't know where it was, all of that led up to what will be remembered as mistake number one. 
They took longer than expected to settle down and establish a leader, but they chose a former member of one of the nation-state's militaries. Australia, if memory serves. That will be remembered as mistake number two. Within one of their weeks, they had already established a very primitive fortress, made out of void-cursed bamboo, walls, separate housing for males and females, and communal area in the middle with very, very large fire pit. Proper distance for a waste area called a latrine, and irregular patrols on the hunting parties for the animals that we had brought. Each male and female amongst them had been armed with an iron-tipped bamboo spear. I distinctly remember thinking, Spears? How primitive are these humans? We didn't know. How could we have known that, other than their own limbs, spears were among their oldest weapons? Prehistorically ancient. That telling humans of a mammalian species to survive and act naturally would lead to the total destruction of the facility on that moon. We were completely unprepared for the ferocity and bloodlust. Every single failsafe we could use to stop a failed experiment didn't work at all. They called our most toxic gases either delightfully minty and refreshing or, ooh, smells like my mom's chili Colorado, whatever that means. A liquid option. They drank it and actually thanked us for fresh water. In hindsight, that should have been expected from a species from a death world. A great oversight on our part. In summary, it is better to observe humans on their own cursed world of a planet, as to attempt to observe them in a neutral environment with even slightly lesser gravity will result in the destruction of billions worth of investment in infrastructure and scientific equipment. All of our advanced science, and they destroyed us with little more than a sense of community, being armed with nothing but sticks and stones. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1709 Story number one. Human subject, Zen Chur Yon. Written by Sysanic. If you will see here, Xenobiologist teacher Drackle for Ken Gained explained with a pointer stick on a holographic display of his 206 students in the auditorium. The Homo sapien has a thin membrane of tissue underneath the skin layer. It'll all be almost film-like in density, so don't slice too hard, otherwise you'll damage the muscle layer below it. He used his pointer to slice away at the diagrammed chest area of a human, revealing a pectoral muscle group. And in some cases, the muscle may be larger than average from activities or profession when the subject was alive. He zoomed out, the display splitting into several different shaped human bodies. Like our species, they had scientists, lawyers, soldiers, mothers, fathers, rich, poor, all different shapes and sizes for all manners of trade. He trailed off as he stared at the armored human shape, rifle in hands as opposed in a firing stance. Snapping back to reality, he turned to the mess of students as they all donned face masks and surgical gowns. The auditorium moved like a layered disc's, separating the students into groups as a surgical table rose in front of each collection of them. From the side of the room came a dozen cryogenically frozen tubes with frost-lined subjects in them. Before you will be a human from various time periods, with some subjects being almost two millennia old, he chuckled to himself. <laughs> so, uh, please, be cautious with them. They're old. Saying that, they're very dead, too. 
I wouldn't bring a live human in here. Goodness, imagine that, what that savage would do if it woke up. But finally, please enjoy yourself so you may now commence your final examination of the semester. The students laughed with him gently as they opened their cryo-frozen humans and let the cryopods in both mechanical arms lay their subject upon the surgical table before them. Some of the humans were evidently male or female and wore a variety of clothes. One had surgical-looking blue set of clothes on and a face mask similar to one the students wore. Another one, a full set of olive-green uniform with a thin metal helmet on its head, a wood and steel firearm slung by its side. Another human, a fresher, larger one, wore a thin bodysuit that mimicked the human's muscle structure. The students began expertly removing the clothes of the humans, cutting along clothing seams and such like to make their medical practice as clean as possible. From the rear of the class, a small group of students looked at their human as it stood in its cryopod. It wore a banded armored torso piece and had a head-covering helmet that carried a red plume that ran vertical along the crown. The red tunic covered what the armor didn't, and a pair of the students ran a check on the fabric. Cotton trousers, that to close sandals. A short sword was frozen to his hip in a scabbard, and it was probably the largest subject of the class. Sir, one of the students said, how cryo-machinery cannot lift this human. Dreckel paced up to the group and let out a curious gasp. The censure, Jan, a rare class of human. They're the oldest of our subjects, actually. Dreckel explained as he carefully placed his gloved hand on the human's chest armor. It's reported that he was picked around 2,051 human years ago, and had been pretty much forgotten about until I found him today. He looked to the students. You're lucky. He's going to make a fascinating... Dreckel stopped as a hand grabbed his. He span on his heel and immediately looked at the human subject. He was staring back with an embossed helmet and snarling beast behind it, a very live human. He went to say something, but he was silenced as another fist buried itself in his face. He was sent reading, his students immediately screaming and fleeing from their table. The human subject, the centurion, climbed uneasily from the cryogenic pod and fell to his knees, breathing heavily as he gained his bearings. The rest of the class turned at their tables in both confusion and fear. Obey some... The human gasped as his lungs fully defrosted, followed by the rest of his internal organs. The students, who were more savvy with what was happening, began recording the human with their wrist-mounted social devices, both for scientific discovery and to use for their final case study. Kuss! The human shouted, backing away from the whimpering teacher and stunned students. The human snatched the sword at his hip and pulled it from the scabbard in one motion, standing with it ready. OBS Legionum! He barked as the students began to close in on him to drag their teacher away from the startled human. Get the campus security, Greckle cried out. Don't get near the human. Silentium, the human barked out once more, pointing the sword at the nearest student. Obey some. The students encroached closer in almost giddy curiosity, and the human could back it up no further. In a flash, it propelled itself forward. The sword plunging into one of the students, crashing their chest instantly and almost pinning them to the floor. Before the sword was ripped free and swung at the closest students, the students' mood went from excitable to sheer terror as the classmates were cut down with merciless efficiency at the hands of a freshly defrosted human warrior. 
The human shouted in its harsh language as it killed, every now and then stopping by one of the frozen cadavers and trying to awaken them with a shake before realizing that they were dead and moving on to kill more students. A large handful escaped and had been replaced with shock baton-wielding security guards. In Imicus, the human barked as he leapt at the security guards. Seventeen Earth minutes and double as many security guards later, the human subject was pacified. It was dragged unconscious to the cryogenic laboratory in several restraints and placed back into cryogenic freezing, still smeared with the blood of alien students it had killed. With the restraints still attached, the pod was closed and the human refrozen for later evaluation. The lead cryogenic scientist leader looked at the frozen subject as Frost caked the armor and helmet. He pressed a few buttons on the panel to his front and looked at the personnel file. You're the first human who's even woken from cryogenic freezing, he said, staring at the snarling beast embossed on the human's helmet. Two thousand years old, and they can't spell your name correctly, he commented as he deleted Centurion and replaced it with the correct term. There we go, Centurion. End of story. Story number two. If you are listening to this, you are the resistance. Written by British Tea Company. They've been here for a long time and taken everything from us. Our freedom, our liberty, and now they've started taking our friends and family. So many friends and loved ones have perished in their initial invasion. And now they're being taken in the night and never seen again. We... Don't even know what the aliens are doing with them. If you are fighting, if you are hiding, if you are running, then know that you are not alone. There are pockets of us fighters who have banded together, and though they've got us outfought and outmanned, we have one key advantage over them. This is our home, and unlike them, we're willing to bleed and die for what is ours. As you're listening to this, my voice is being broadcasted over every secure radio channel and every free settlement. The aliens have taken much, but they haven't taken everything quite yet. It is now our duty as the one still free to continue to fight. It is our responsibility with our freedom to make sure everyone else gets there. For those in the cities, this starts... With you. If you are in the cities, you need to get out now. You are not safe. The aliens have set up checkpoints all throughout the cities to prevent you from escaping. But tonight, there will be a timed power outage that will last for roughly five minutes. It's not much, but it's all you have. If you can be at the city limits by 8.37pm sharp, you will have enough time to escape of all the security systems are reactivated. Spread out when you're running. You'll be harder to find. And if they get one of you, then at least they won't get all of you. The Resistance has outposts all throughout the wild and the wasteland. We have set up posts where we will find you. Once you start running, do not stop under any circumstances. Save yourself and free yourself. Only then... Can you begin the real fight? We have food. We have shelter. We have weapons. We have the means to take our world back. We need people. People 
who are willing to fight and lay their lives on the line to make sure that what belongs to us is given back to us. This is Jim Gallup. If you are listening to this, you are the resistance. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, it's difficult to pronounce, Lord Azrakul and Arcadian.